Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Explore today's must-have trends and innovative styles at Mrs. B's Clearance and Outlet. Shop one-of-a-kind finds in today's must-have trends. Explore wall-to-wall deals, furniture, flooring, mattresses, home accents, seasonal favorites, and more. Discover unique new home decor, pillows, accessories, and more. There's something perfect for your style and budget. There's new inventory every day at up to 80% off suggested retail. Discover the style and savings of Mrs. B's Clearance and Outlet. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills, too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically, so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with the 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 46 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union. But come on, you know Digital Federal Credit Union is better known as DCU. And not only is DCU a great place to bank at, but they're also a great place to work at. And they are hiring right now for full and part-time positions for several of their branch locations throughout Massachusetts and New Hampshire. So if you, a friend, or a family member is looking for a career change or to start a new career at a credit union making a difference for their members and their employees, visit dcu.org careers. DCU is proud to be an equal employment opportunity and affirmative action employer. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by MistressCarrie.com, which is where you can get all of the information about the Mistress Carrie podcast and all of the full-length episodes that come out every Wednesday, plus every situation report, which is all of your music headlines and rock news in less than five minutes every weekday, plus cocktails in the war room. There's over 127 episodes of my weekly show that's live every Tuesday night at 8.30 on my Facebook page. There's the event calendar, my blog, my photo galleries, and of course, the official online Mistress Carrie store. And what's new in the store right now? The awesome baby onesies, just in time for Mother's Day. Just log on to MistressCarrie.com. Okay, when I started the Mistress Carrie podcast, I wanted it to be a rock lifestyle podcast which means that I wanted to be able to keep you in touch with all of your favorite bands and introduce you to the best new bands out there. But I also wanted to get behind the music and the songs you love and introduce you to the people that make the instruments, that tour with the bands that know all of the great stories, and the people who help to make it all possible. And this week, I'm introducing you to one of those people. Her name is Karen Durkot. And I have known her for over 25 years. And she is a legend in the music business. She started out her career in music retail back in the 70s and had a front row seat of the music business for decades working at record companies. She is one of the women in rock that paved the way for women like me. She was there at the beginning of the careers of some of the biggest bands of all time. And she's got the stories to prove it. 
This episode is an encyclopedic timeline of rock and roll from a woman that is so smart, so educated, so knowledgeable, and so well-respected in the business that only she could tell her story. I was so excited when she agreed to do the podcast, and I cannot wait for you to hear her stories. And by the end of this episode, you are going to have a new favorite slogan and a new favorite band name. So allow me to introduce you to Karen Durkot. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Karen Durkot. Hello, Carrie. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you. Healthy, for- and healthy and retired from 46 years in the record business. That's insane. Yeah. For six years hustling records in retail, and then forty years working for manufacturers and labels. So, when, and two two years ago, I retired. I traveled for a year, and relocated from New York City back back here to Boston, and spent um, three months in Asia, and and then COVID hit, and here we are. Yeah. And COVID hit. It's like, that's the, that's the period on everyone's sentence. This happened, this happened, this happened, then COVID hit, period. And now it's like, we're starting a new paragraph now. It's like, okay, hit the tab button. Let's go. Yeah. Well, the, the good thing is um, I got vaccinated, but you know, with, with, as um, with states like Florida being wide open and people going there and the beaches are crowded and the bars are open we're not, I just have this fear that we're never going to get rid of this thing because Texas is wide open, no mask mandates. And you we'll know, get rid of it when more people get vaccinated. And I'm glad to hear that you got vaccinated. I'm, I'm happy that they are prioritizing people that are most susceptible, you know, whether it be younger first aid responders or older people or people with pre-existing conditions. Exactly. Teachers. Like I have no problem waiting in line, waiting for my chance. I'm locked in here in MCHQ all day, every day. So I'm good, but I'm glad that they are prioritizing people and getting people vaccinated. And I think the vaccination is the key to us getting back to not only life as normal, but music business as normal. Well, that's going to be interesting. I've, I've talked to a lot of managers and, um, you know, people that, that 
you know, booking agents and promoters and they're going out in the fall. Yeah. People are talking about it. They, the bands are itching. They need to make money. They've been locked in the house too long. And- One friend of mine manages a very successful band and um, they're for the Ryman auditorium. They're the fourth hold and they're guaranteed to sell out there two or three nights. And they're the fourth hold on that room in their routing. So everybody, every, everybody's, well, no one's made any money, especially, you know, all the booking agents and the managers without bands being on the road, they don't make any money, let alone the the musicians and the crews and lighting. It's yeah, it's, it's pandemic. Damn it. I know. And what I love about you is that you retired and yet even in retirement, you're still keeping your thumb on everything that's going on. That does not surprise me at all. Not, not everything. You know, I have a few friends out there that, that are managers and they're friends, you know, if, if, and there's a, there's through word of mouth over the last uh, couple of years, some independent artists have called me up for advice because they know they're not going to get played on the radio and they don't know what to do, especially since they're not touring. So I've helped them, um, connected them to people that can better help them. But I just advise, I'm not, I'm not getting in the mix. I'm just saying, call this person, do this. Maybe this will help you. But, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to not, not be in the fray. I think a lot of people that worked with you over the years in the record industry are going to be very surprised that you agreed to sit down with me and do this interview. Well, let them be surprised, Mistress Kim. <laughs> let them be surprised. So I tried to figure out how long I've known you, and it had to have been. You do? Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, you were interning at AAF on the night show, and I meant to look this up today because I wanted to remember the band. And it was early days at V2 Records. They were a UK metal band. They were playing on the Warp Tour. And I, I was, I was green lighted to bring them into the night show. And I went into the studio and you were there. And that's the first time I met you. Was it orange nine millimeter? No, no, Hmm. no. I I meant to look it up um, among the, the British rock bands that I worked when I was at V2 and I went to V2 at the end, at the end of 1997 was I, and I was there for 10 years and, and, and went down with the ship. And when, when Richard Branson decided to start up that label, I, I just said, I want to work for Richard Branson because he had sold Virgin records. He um, had to stay out of the record business in the U S for five years because he got like a billion dollars or something like that to buy Virgin. The, the original Virgin Records. So we couldn't call it Virgin because it was now owned by EMI. And but and when he started up V2 Records in the UK in 97, I remember reading it in the trades and I was like, I want to work for that label. And I wormed my way in there, <laughs> talked my way in and got the job and stayed there for 10 years until uh, those early aught years in the, in the late 90s and the early 2000s were really hard years for the record industry because of broadband and file sharing and downloading and the upheaval in the business and how it changed, how the digital world drastically changed the record industry. Well, can we go Not- back to the beginning? Because I want to talk about how you got into the record business, because the beauty of this podcast and being a rock lifestyle podcast is that 
it shows that it's not just the bands that make it all happen. And I've been able to interview people that are part of the crew, people that actually help make and design the instruments. And it's all about the lifestyle where the music is the unifier. And you're the first person I've been able to have on the podcast that comes at it from this perspective. And when you got into the record business, there weren't that many women doing it. And you, Karen Durcott, are notorious. Well, I, I, I got into the record business. I dropped out of college in the early 70s. And um, I was living, I was going to college in my hometown, Binghamton, New York. And not very many bands came through there. My friends and I were driving to CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. And we went to, you know, drove over, drove to Rochester, New York to see David Bowie and the Diamond Dogs tour. We were always in the car going to see bands somewhere else because bands didn't very often come to Binghamton. Did you grow up loving rock music even as a little kid? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I don't have many memories other than... um, the first, I'm, I'm the youngest of four kids, and I made my brother when I was five, three or five, five. I made him buy me the 45 of Elvis Presley doing Jailhouse Rock. And then I remember the Tokens, the Lion Sleeps Tonight, and the Everly Brothers. And I just, I love that stuff. I love that stuff. And then February 1964, I'd been hearing the Beatles on the radio because I would tune into WBZ in in upstate New York. I was tuning in on my little AM transistor radio. And like a lot of us that that came came of age in in the in the early 60s, um when not even came of age, but I was I was 10 when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. And that's truly when I feel my life began. Because I, I I remember kneeling in front of the TV with my mouth open and just being like it was, it was, I still remember the feeling of, I, I was, I was, I was having, I was having a fucking conniption. You it's, know, I it's was something I that was, pe- younger people can't imagine because there's so much technology and so much access and so many avenues. But back then, Ed Sullivan was it. And if you got on Ed Sullivan, the whole world saw you. But it was still rock and rock was dangerous and rock was forbidden. And, and if you liked the, if in, in those early sixties, if you liked the Beatles and God forbid, if you liked the stones, because when they toured in 1965, I was, I think 12 years old and they played in in Syracuse, New York on, on maybe their first or second tour of America. And I remember begging my mother to go. And she said, if it was the Beatles, I say, yes, but the Rolling Stones, uh, uh-uh, uh, those are bad boys. No. And when I, 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 I lived for buying records. I lived for, I, I, there was a, a, a discount department store down the street from my house, several blocks away, easy walking distance. And they had a record department and I would just file, file, file through the albums and look at the 45s and the picture sleeves. First single I bought with my own money was the Kinks. Um, all day and all the night. And and you know what? That was 1964, and that song holds up. So fierce. good. It's still good. Still great. It's still great. Just great. 
and you just like that fierce fuzz tone he got on the guitar and the crack of that cymbal and the snare drum. I was in. I was all in. What was the first show? How old were you when you got to go to your first show for real? The Dave Clark Five in a parking lot in Endicott, New York. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Did you ever get to see the Beatles? No. No. It was, you know... By the time, by they didn't tour that much. And when they did, it was stadiums and it was just, it was horrible. I remember the Shea Stadium show, my girlfriends and I were all, you know, huddled around the TV in my girlfriend Carol's living room. And all we heard was screaming. And I remember going to Hard Day's Night and coming home and, and being, my mother looked at me and she said, what's wrong? You just saw your favorite band. You know, what's, what you, you, I said, mom, I couldn't hear anything. I went there to hear the music and she, and all the girls were screaming. I was 12 and I was bitching that I couldn't hear the music because the girls were screaming. And my mother said, I remember, I was like, what? She was like, yeah, it was like that with Frank Sinatra. The girls would just scream. You couldn't hear him sing. It's amazing that that it was limited by technology. Like they couldn't make a PA big enough to be louder. They couldn't hear themselves. Yeah. They couldn't, yeah, they could they didn't have monitors. So all they had was the PA. And and so they were playing, you know, they played Suffolk Downs here in Boston. They played um they played baseball stadiums. You know, they played Candlestick Park in in San Francisco before they ripped it down. So it, it seeing a show like that wasn't it was a that you know, it was too far away and B I could never score a ticket. I couldn't score a ticket to see the Stones until 1972. And, and, and I tried, I tried, I tried every, they toured every three years. So 65, 68, 16, no, 69. That was the Altamont tour with Gimme Shelter in 72. I tried, I tried every time and it was a lottery system. So if you got your name pulled, you had to go to New York and cause they didn't have Ticketmaster. Then you had to go and physically pick up a ticket and you had to stand in line to get a ticket. I mean, I tried to see Led Zeppelin in the in the late 60s. And um, I went to Syracuse, New York, to the War Memorial there. My friends and I, three of us, were standing in line, standing in line. I get to the window at the box office, says to me, the Syracuse War Memorial, says to me, I got one ticket left. And I looked at my friends and I was like, holy shit. I, I, and I, I couldn't, like, abandon my friends and say, well, I'm going to go to see fucking Zeppelin and you're not. And right at that moment, the Syracuse police let attack dogs out on the crowd that couldn't get tickets. And so we went flying because German shepherds barking, unleashed, were chasing us out of the uh, out of line at the Syracuse War Memorial. You're a good Very friend. Sick. I would have bought that ticket. I wouldn't. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I didn't want to go to, I didn't want to go to, you know, plus, you know, it was like an hour away. I didn't want to go to the show by myself. I didn't have the wheels. My friends did. Even if you just to scalp them and get, and make a bunch of money on it. I was, I was 15, (laughs) 16. I think I was 16. You know, I didn't have that kind of savvy yet to say, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I, I just couldn't abandon my friends. So you continue this love of music into college and you're driving all over the place with your friends going to see shows. Yeah. And, and shopping at the record store in my town, being there all the time, all the time, constantly all the time. 
So I'm, I'm miserable in college. I was doing lots of drugs, drinking hard. I, I was a shitty student. Um, I just didn't apply myself to it. I wasn't into it at all. And, um, um, I walked in the record store one day to pick up my special order of Frank Zappa's hot rats on vinyl, of course. And, um, manager of the store, uh, walked up to me and said, you know, Karen, you're in here all the time. You want to work here? Dale's leaving. He gave me notice today. You want a, you want a job? I was like, fuck yeah. And I went home and I told my parents, I'm dropping out of school. I'm going to work in the record store. And, and they supported it. They said, you know, whatever makes you happy. And that was in February of 1973. And the first album I unpacked when I came to work at that record store, there were two of them. There was uh, the Almond Brothers, Brothers and Sisters, the first album that they released after uh, Dwayne Almond died. And the next album was Greetings from Asbury Park by Bruce Springsteen. And it sat there until they opened up the Binghamton War Memorial, uh, an arena, and um, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band were the opening act for Chicago. And I went to that show and I had fourth row seats and I remember being as shocked and jacked, jacked to the gills as I was when I saw, first saw the Beatles, when I saw Springsteen on that stage. I'd never seen anything like it before. You know, it was the first album. The next day I go in to open up the record store and there's a line of guys waiting to get in. And I was like, you're out here for the Springsteen record, aren't you? And they were like, yeah. And I said, well, I've got five. So first five. And then I went in and ordered like 200 copies from Columbia. It's amazing that you can blame your start of the music business on Frank Zappa, that you just happened to be in the store that day when they were hiring. <laughs> To pick up my special order. True story. And now younger people don't understand that when you went to the record store back then, not only could you spend hours combing through the racks, but also the people that worked in the record store were music experts. And you would go into the store and be like, hey, this is the kind of music I like. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And you would actually buy stuff based on the recommendations of those cool people that worked at the record store. Or, or you would look at the people that were in the store and kind of suss out what they might like or what might blow their minds or in-store play. It's the same as being a disc jockey. You were in there, you're playing to your audience, and, and, and depending on what you were playing, you could either clear the store out or you could influence people to spend a lot of money and buy stuff they never ordinarily would. And, you know, it was, it was a source of music discovery. Um, when, when you had license to be able to play from your own whatever you wanted. Um, I eventually left upstate New York because like I said, I was going to see, I was, I, I was always like dragging my ass into, into open up the store and, um, being really tired because 
I'd driven to New York and gone to see the New York Dolls at CBGB's or, or Max's Kansas City. And so I'd get home at, at five in the morning and then open up the record, you know, have two hours of sleep and open up the record store. And I got really tired of that. So I left upstate New York and flipped the coin. I had a lot of friends in New York City and I had a couple of friends in Boston. And I flipped a coin and I said, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to either Boston or New York. And it landed on Boston. So I moved to Boston in the mid seventies and um, I hung out at a record store. I didn't get a job in a record store, but there was one right around the corner from the only job I could get in 1974, which was at the Beckwith Elevator Company. And it was in the heart of BU. In fact, BU owns the building now that Beckwith Elevator was in. And that was my first civilian job and office job. And I hated it because I'd worked in bars. I worked in record stores. I was a librarian for uh, when I was in high school. So I was always in, in uh, I was either slinging pizza and beer or books and records. So doing office work was a culture that was stifling and I hated it. And around the corner from Beckwith Elevator Company was Music City. And I hung out at Music City, my lunch hours. And it was right across from the main chapel of BU. And um, I hung out there. And one day I was in there for lunch and I was helping him unpack and sticker records. I was working in the record store, even though I was just hanging out there eating lunch. I just needed to see what was going on after my couple of years in upstate um, running a record store. So... They said, um, we've got an opening in um, our Harvard Square store. We're going to send you over to meet with the manager. So I got that job because I could run all the numbers in, in, the, in the catalog. I could like run little feet numbers and, and Zeppelin numbers. I could run catalog numbers in my head. And, and that, this is the days before uh, universal barcoding. So um, I can't tell you how many times it endeared me to bands when um, they say like, oh, we're, we're, we're on the bus listening to ACDC back in black. And I'd say 16018. And they go, what the fuck are you talking about? And I was like, that's the catalog number of ACDC back in black. <laughs> what? And then they look at it and go, well, oh, yeah, that's the original catalog number before UBC. So in, back in the early in the 70s, when you were working in a record store, the community like what you're referring to, being in-store play, the ability to play records, the customers that you got to know, um, people that would only come in once a year when, you know, grandparents would come in and say, I got to buy records for my 15-year-old grandson. What do you recommend? And, they, and, and I'd say, how much do you want to spend? And then I'd load them up, you know, and then that was, so that was fun, you know, being able to be a personal shopper for a 16-year-old and when yeah. you were when you were in upstate, still in college, making all those trips into the city, growing up a teenager in the eighties here in Massachusetts, we all knew what CBGBs was, but it wasn't until I got much older where I even had the opportunity to go. What was it like driving into New York and going to a show at CBGBs back then? Um. You just, you know, went through the door and crowded in and got as close to the stage as you could. That was really hard at CBGs. Max's Kansas City, it was a little bit easier. And then there was the Lone Star, where um, my uh, later in the, in the in the early '80s, um, my girlfriend uh, Michelle was an was an actor, and 
she um, auditioned and worked at uh, the, the Lone Star at night. And I went to visit her there one night to pick up drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they, it was two level. And I went up the stairs, asked around. She said, I'm going to be working on the second floor. So I went up to the second floor. I found my girlfriend. She hooked me up. I'm coming back down the stairs. I get to the bottom of the stairs about to leave and go back out on a Park Avenue South. And a guy comes tumbling down the stairs. I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to fucking die. And I'm standing at the foot of the stairs watching this person tumble down the stairs. He gets up, says, excuse me, darling. It was Keith Richards. (gasps) Keith Richards. I saw him fall down the stairs. That was my only brush with Keith Richards was when he fell down the stairs at Max's at my feet. Excuse me, darling. It's hilarious. Carrie, it wasn't any different than going into Bunratty's, you know, and you were young and you just driven four hours and you were there to see that band and you were just going to muscle your way in and, and rock. Because back then, rock was still underground. It wasn't used in commercials. It was ours. And it was, it was, it was the devil's music, you know? I had, when I was coming in, when I was living with my parents and shopping at record stores, it was so, it pissed off my father to no end that that was my passion. You're wasting your money on that shit. So I would come home with my 12 by 12 in the paper bag and I would open up our trap door, the bulkhead. And I would put the record in there. I'd go in the house empty handed. Hey, hey, how you doing? And then when no one was looking, I'd go into the cellar, go in up into the bulkhead, find my record and then find my way up to my room. I sneaked my record collection because it was so Uh, It was not the way to spend my hard-earned money. And I started working when I was 12. I was working in our church catering hall uh, for banquets and weddings. And then uh, at 14, I went to work in a diner. And then at 15, I was able to get a job in um, at my local public library as a, as a clerk. And I worked to say, to buy money, buy, buy records. That was it. It doesn't matter the era the story of a rock fan is the same no matter what. Right. That the you, music pisses your parents off, that you spend all your money on it, that you spend all your time with your friends going to see the bands, and, it, and it's part of your DNA. Well, the difference back then and now is that a, a lot of parents, because they grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they often turn their kids on to music. Like I, have a, I have a nephew who's in his late, late 30s. And when he was going to college, I remember asking, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but um, he wasn't into Tool and he wasn't into a, a, the hard rock bands of the 80s and the 90s. He just wasn't into it. So he would, he would come over to my house. I was still living here in Boston and he would come over to my house and, and, and you know, he'd be listening to Howlin' Wolf. And, and, and the band. So he came not to listen to AAF, but to ZLX because he preferred older music than the music that was that, that most kids age were passionate about. So it's, but, but my parents weren't into 
rock at all. Yeah, see, mine know? mine were. My parents yeah. were the ones that introduced me to Chicago, Three Dogs, Three Dog Night, The Beatles, like all of that stuff. I, I learned Jethro Tull. I learned that from my parents. I almost got trampled going into a Jethro Tull concert. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. It was a heart attack. I almost died. I just interviewed not too long ago Jonathan McHugh, who is the director and the producer of Long Live Rock, Celebrate the Chaos, the documentary. And we, in that interview, were joking about how every rock fan looks back fondly on the, on the experience of almost dying at a rock show. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I wasn't that fond of it. It was one of those, one of those shows where my friends, I wasn't into Tull. My friends wanted to go. I was like, oh, okay, I'll go with you. And so we, um, from Binghamton, we went up to Cornell University in Ithaca, which was less than an hour drive. So we went to the show and the doors were supposed to open at seven and they got, they didn't open late. And by the time doors opened, the crush of the crowd was intense and I'm small. And I remember being engulfed by shoulders and heads and, and I was suffocating and somehow the you know my 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 indian spirit guides my four my four native spirit guides who have helped me along the way i corkscrewed up somehow and got up above the shoulders so that i could breathe and i was carried off my feet into into that auditorium and i never even liked them uh-oh. You mean Grammy Award winning best heavy metal artist, Jethro Tull? Oh, yeah. Wasn't that funny? Oh, yeah. That was, that was sick. Another show that I went to in the early 80s, um, a, a, a beneficent friend again going along on a road trip from Binghamton, uh, going to Utica, New York, uh, over a, a two-hour drive from Binghamton in the winter to go and see the Grateful Dead and hitchhiked there. And we got a ride with a tractor trailer that hauled cars, used cars. And the driver was from Alabama. He picked us up on Route 12 in upstate New York, hitchhiking to see the fucking dead. And, the, and I was covered in grease. My whole ass was like grease because everything in that vehicle was covered in grease. He drives us to Utica. We go. We go into the show. And um, at the time, the drug laws in New York State were, were so draconian. If you got caught with a joint, you saw jail time. So I don't know what was going on at this show, but it was a GA show. I'm on the floor with my friend Brad, and there's a tussle right in front of us. And there's a guy, there's a girl and a guy standing right in front of us. And all of a sudden, another guy walks in and... Um, he punches the guy in the face and he takes her down and drags her across the floor by her ponytail. And I, she's going, help, help. And I went and took her arm and I started pulling her away from him. And what I didn't see was that that arm was handcuffed to him. And he had one arm handcuffed and had her by the hair. And he dropped her ponytail and went into his back, pulled out a gun and held it to my head and said, drop her. And I dropped her. Was it, was it a cop? I think so. I think it was an undercover narc. 
and maybe they were slinging, slinging acid or something. I didn't know. I didn't see him doing anything in front of me. And, and it was, uh, it was, it was, I'd quit smoking cigarettes for six months. And I, and all these people, all these people that were sitting in the bleachers on the side, like saw it, saw it go down. And, and like all these people like handed, handed me cigarettes, everybody's handing me cigarettes. You must be a wreck. That was crazy. And I started smoking cigarettes again. It's amazing how funny, like the idea of hitchhiking is. I hitchhiked once in my life trying to get the 30 miles from the mud pit that was Woodstock 94 back to where the van was that me and my friends had all rented to get us out to New York. And I look back at it now and I'm like, I can't believe I fucking hitchhiked. Like, what what was wrong with us? But it used to be, like, I think I'm the last generation of anybody that would ever hitchhike. Yeah, everybody did it. I did it many times. I mean, I, I did it in secret because my parents would have killed me, but I did it a lot. And and I hitchhiked um, to Bar Harbor, Maine once from upstate New York. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is a- what horror movies are made of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and it, yeah, go ahead. So you find yourself in Boston and you're working at the record store. That's right. that's Harvard Square worked. I, I worked at um, Music City in Harvard Square, which was right where uh, Mass Ave and Mount Auburn split. And um, we had a showcase window, which was great for people watching. And and um, all the labels, all the record companies would come in and book our window to put up displays. And then. Um, all the guys in the crew had a pair of binoculars to girl watch because there was always action in Harvard Square. And um, it was a full catalog record store. And within, this was in the mid to late seventies, in a two block area, there were six record stores. There was a full classical store with sheet music and a whole classical department, Briggs and Briggs. There was the, um, the Harvard Coop, which was one of the biggest record stores in America. The um, um, and then there was Strawberries and Discount Records and Music City and then came Newberry Comics. So there were in in a two block area six six record stores and people would would run to save a dime. They would run from each one. Oh, Discount's got it for three ninety nine. Oh, Music City's got it for five. You know whatever. And um, and it was it was crazy. It was a lot of fun. It were they were great years and. The this was this was the what the punk era. So it was the disco era, the punk era, um, Kiss. Um, we had a waterfall of vinyl, and right when you walked into the store, there was a whole wall, and it was waterfall of vinyl. And the bottom shelves were for the records that sold the most because they were the biggest shelves, the thickest shelves. And we put all the Kiss records up on there because when parents brought their little kids in in strollers. The, the little kids were apeshit about Kiss. So it was just, and then the, the, so the, you know, the kids would start crying. I want that, I want that, I want that. And then the parents would spend more money. And I, that was, that was, that was so, that, that, those were great years. I just found an old picture of myself that's got to be from the third grade. And I had aunts that are a little bit older. So they were the cool teenage aunts, you know, when I was the little kid and they went 
to see Kiss in 76 on that bicentennial tour and that famous poster of Kiss with them all dressed up as like revolutionary soldiers with the bloody bandages. And they bought me that poster and I had it (laughs) hanging up in my bedroom. And I remember I and when I found this picture, I was like, oh, my God, I had this dark purple lipstick on and I was wearing rosary beads as a headband with the with the crucifix hanging down in my face, standing in front of this kiss poster in like the third grade. And you oh, you were always cool. Come on, girl. It, always it's cool. one of those things where it's like. You know, none of what's going on now in my life should be a surprise because I think every rock kid like you, like me, it's like you just grow up with it. And Kiss, when I was a kid, it was they were that dangerous, crazy band and all of the blood and the pyro and the crazy makeup. And, you know, yeah, but it would freak people out. So I can see how walking into that record store in that era, it's like, yeah, of course it was going to freak the parents out. It was the oh, yeah. demon yeah. worshipers that kiss. Yeah. Yeah. So when it was, it was, we were off a full catalog record store and we, we were a billboard reporter and that was the days before UBC, um, universal barcoding. And it was the days before, um, um, sound scan, which, um, digitally clocks, clock sales for every record sold. And it was the days before, um, radio stations could be monitored for what they played. So there was a lot of smoke and mirrors in the, in the record industry back in, in the, well, that was the only metric to be able to prove success was how many records sold and they're getting reported locally from record stores. That was the only way anybody knew how quote unquote popular a band was. And even the radio stations would make decisions about what to play based on the record sales. Right. Yep. Yep. You know, sometimes, you know, a label would call us up and say, um, Hey, can you do us a favor? And We'd say, sure. I didn't do that. I, I was the night manager at Music City in Harvard Square. So, um, you know, I would put at night, the store was open until midnight. And from 10 to midnight, everybody that was coming into the store was usually fucked up. They were either tripping or they were drunk. So at midnight, if I had a store full of people on, I would put on something like Anthony Braxton caterwauling on a horn like doing some really outside jazz just to clear the store out, you know, and then, um, um, or, you know, it was the opposite. I mean, it was, it was, we had a billy club behind the register, um, or, and a pipe. So if, if we saw somebody getting really unruly, there was, um, one of the guys on my crew was, was very, a very frightening looking dude. He had these like big arched eyebrows and he was a wiry guy and he was tough as nails and I just say to Walter, Walter, get the pipe. You know, <laughs> I'm literally going to quote that for the rest of my life. Walter, get the pipe. Right. Uh, we we actually had um, a booster come in, and we would warn each other all the re- like we call discount and go. We've got a booster. We've got a live one. Here's what he's wearing or she. Usually it was guys, and we had a guy that used to come in in a long black coat. And he was a tag team and the, he'd have a Mercedes sedan waiting outside for him. And he'd go up to the Zeppelin bin and the Zeppelin bin was big because they were, 
really popular, of course, back then and still are. And he would go to the Zeppelin bin and he'd have this big black trench coat on and he would stuff the albums into the trench coat. So like he could be really surreptitious about it. And we had one guy that used to come in again, the Zeppelin bin. Oh, we caught the guy going out. I was like, Walter, get the pipe. So Walter ran after the guy with the pipe and the guy's getting into a fucking Mercedes. Like, really? You're coming in and boosting albums and you're driving away in a Mercedes. Fuck you. We had one guy, again, the Zeppelin bin and the Zeppelin bin was on the right side of the store and he was crazy. And he used to go to the Zeppelin bin and start yelling at Jimmy Page that Jimmy Page um, screwed him out of royalties because he wrote um, whatever, you know, one of the big one of the big ones. Funny that things don't change, that that same stuff is happening now just through the courts. (laughs) Right. So and, and then we had another guy that used to come in and talk to himself. And we were always afraid that he was going to pee in a bin. So it was again, it was Walter, get the pipe because the, the peer was in or the guy, the raver that that had the, that, that owed uh, that Jimmy Page owed money to was in. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun working in the late 70s, working in the 70s in, in, in record retail. And that movie High Fidelity is just so spot on of um with john cusack and jack black about the the culture store that you you made friends and and concert buddies and and you learned a lot and there was a real sense of community and it's lost you know it's gone which was um um a real sad thing i mean my six years of working record retail were terrific just terrific so and, you love it so much so how do you make the decision to to start working for the record companies themselves Oh, I didn't make the decision. It was made. It was, I answered an ad and I got sick of it. You get sick of retail. I mean, anybody that works retail for any period of time, you get to hate people. I had some Harvard, Harvard woman uh, walk up to me at the, at, in, in the store and it was really busy. And she said to me, you're very hostile. And I was like, you want to see fucking hostile? <laughs> Walter, get the pipe! <laughs> And you just get, you know, you just get sick of people yeah. and, and, and retail re, a, a life spent. I, I respect people that can spend a lot of years in retail because you got to have a lot of patience, especially in Harvard square where everybody's a fucking genius. Right. So, um, a girlfriend called me up one day. She, she, um, she worked at the rat, um, oh, the, the famous, rat. famous seller club in Boston. And, um, um, She's like, I just saw an ad in the Boston Globe. And uh, they're looking for a file clerk at, at WEA. And WEA, W-E-A, was the distribution arm of the labels Warner Brothers, Electra, and Atlantic. And I applied for the job. And it was the first time in my life where I was overqualified for a gig. But they said, however... You're overqualified for this, but since you've had computer experience from the Beckwith Elevator Company, um, my years working there was when they went from a manual bookkeeping system to a computer system. And I learned how to operate an IBM, a big IBM machine. And I knew, I knew, uh, I knew how to do data entry on a cathode ray tube, they were called at the time, and an IBM key punch and I knew catalog. I knew the Columbia catalog, the WIA catalog, the RCA catalog from years of working in a record store. So they said, we've got an opening in a month. 
and we would like to hire you for that job. And it was working in the WIA order department. And I left record retail in 79 and I got a job at um, Warner Elector Atlantic in at the end of 79, Thanksgiving 79. And then um, I retired. Because you knew how to use a computer. Because I, I knew how to use a computer. And I worked it. I had like the, the, the a perfect skill set for them. Right. I could back up computer operator at the, at the time, which, you know, these days are long gone too with, with distribution, physical distribution of records, every record company, Capital, Warner, Warner Electra Atlantic, Capital EMI, uh, Columbia, which was uh, uh, Epic and Columbia records. And then, then became Sony later on, but Everybody had a distribution office where you had marketing people um, that serviced all the record stores in the market and salespeople, and it housed the promotion people for each of the labels, had radio promotion people that were dedicated to going into radio and pitching the artists on that label. And and back in when when I started working at 1970 in 79 at WIA, um, Though that too was the the community of those years, I was at that office in a variety of different jobs for almost two almost two decades. And those people that are were there then are still my friends. And and we talk about how great it was to be in that community in the eighties. Up in, and it lasted up until about nine late nine mid to late nineties. It started to fall apart. Um. And then it really fell apart in the early 2000s. I mean, it was the, the digital world, you know, broadband and the digital world, like turned the record industry upside down. But prior to that, the years that I was there, um, I worked in the order department for a couple of years. And then in 1981, they put me out into the field. Um, um, one of the, I, I became a field merchandiser. So I would put up displays in record stores and um, I would go all over Eastern New England, up to Maine, um, Rhode Island. Um, we had a Connecticut person, so I didn't go to Connecticut or Albany very much unless they were sick or whatever. What were and, you driving for a car back then when you were driving around New England, building all of these record displays? I was driving a Subaru. <laughs> I was a Subaru girl. Yeah. And uh, it was fun. In fact, in one of the strawberries in Burlington, um, I was putting up a Black Sabbath mob rules display. And I was up on a ladder. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm just over five feet. And I didn't put the rubber, we, the rubber feet down the right way. And I'm up on the top of the ladder over and with a staple gun putting Black Sabbath mob rules staples display up into the over the over the bins and the ladder went out from under me and I crashed down into the Russian composers Prokofiev and Rachmaninoff <laughs> and and every it was such a loud noise in the store that in the mall it was a mall so all these people from all the stores came running because of the clatter that I made crashing down into these bins and uh yeah yeah but the, being a field merchandiser was fun, you know, because it was um, it was freedom. I wasn't in an office anymore, and I was out on the road, and uh, and I made a vow to myself back then that I would never eat fast food, and I never ate I've never eaten fast food. Really? Never. 
Never. I mean, I had before then, but one of the, one of our sales reps, a young guy, he was in fact younger than me, and he had a, a doctor's visit, and his cholesterol was off the hook, and his blood pressure was high, and he wasn't even twenty eight. I think he was like twenty six, and his doctor said, "What do you eat?" And he was like, oh, "I eat McDonald's like every fucking day." And the doctor said, "Knock it off." You know, and then it was years later when when um, fast food, the my, what was it? Spurlock? Yeah, yeah, super over supersized me. Yep. Yeah, and Morgan that was proven. Yeah, he proved it. He did the he ate McDonald's every day. So when when this, I had just become a field merchandiser, and when that sales rep, who was my contemporary, was his health was in dire straits because he was eating fast food. I was like, that's not an option. You know, I'd rather get an apple and some cheese and some carrots rather than eat that shit. So I stopped eating fast food. Well, nobody gets into rock and roll for the health benefits <laughs> between the late hours, the fast food, the drugs, the booze. Were you still partying then? Oh, yeah. So oh. you're worried about oh. your cholesterol, but not about the drugs and the booze. <laughs> yeah, I was... Um, I was, I was, uh, I was, I was a hard drinker and, um, I, I did, I did anything that any, anybody put in front of me. I was, I was game. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. And then, um. But your cholesterol was fine. I never had that stuff checked back then. You know, when you're in your twenties, you know, when he got a physical, I was like, what? You know, I didn't do that stuff back then. My body started to fall apart, though, but that's that's further on down the down the road. I was um, in 79 when I went to work at WIA in 81. I was in the order department in in then I graduated into field merchandiser. Then I became a sales rep. So I had um, I had the Harvard coop for an account and that was challenging. And I was a sales rep for two years. And then um, the elector rep in the WIA Boston office was being elevated to run the rock department at Electra in New York City in 1984. And he recommended that they hire me. And when I interviewed with the head of promotion, um, he, he was told a story about me that, um, that I used to move Motley Cruz records up to the front of the bin in the Harvard Coop when I was doing inventories because they didn't even want to stock it. Like the Harvard coupe, like was so um, hipster or it, they just like, we don't know. Our customers don't buy Motley Crue. And so I was like, all right, just one of each, just one of each. And, and then I would put them in the front of the bin so that they would, they would maybe get noticed and sell better. So he, he had been told that story and he had, anyway, he, he hired me because we read the same books and because I took care of Motley Crue when I was a sales rep. So 1984 was a defining year for me in my love of music because in 1984, I was in the sixth grade and that was Van Halen, Def Leppard, Pyromania. Like that's when I started discovering my own generation's rock music. Like I had learned about Kiss and Zeppelin from my... My, those cool aunts and then yeah. I had learned about the Chicago's and the three dog nights and the association and the Beatles and all that from my parents but in the early 80s 
I started discovering rock for myself, and this was my generation's rock. Right. And right. I... Like, I look back at that, like, my life changed, like how you were talking about how your life didn't exist before you saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Like, 1984 for me was that defining year where it was like, okay, I'm a rock fan now because I want to be, not because other people are telling me that I want to be. This is now, it's mine. And it was, yeah, it wasn't theirs. It now became yours. Yeah. Well, in 84... The first single that I worked um, was Dockin. And um, what song was it? And, um, it was um, Alone Again. Dockin' Alone Again. And back then, I, you know, going to radio, um, no one teaches you how to promote a record. Um, how I got by doing radio promotion for 35 years um, and I was told this as I was ending my career, um, was of passion. That, that when I came in to promote a record, um, I had a passion for music that few other promotion people did. And It wasn't um, a job for you. Because you and I worked together for years because I was the music director and the assistant program director at WAF and was on the air for 22 years, which is how I, I met you. But... I was the person that a lot of those promotion people would schedule a meeting with to come in and talk to me about a record. And you could always tell when they were there because they had to be versus there because they really believed in what they were talking about. And you were always one of those people that was like, no, 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 this is, this is really good. I believe in this. I'm really passionate about this. Well, it's, it's, you know, we're all, it's anybody in any job is different. And I think the, that's um i cared you know some people just don't give a shit you know and one of the things that i i i have a lot of respect for musicians and and i think i have the heart of a musician but certainly not the talent you and me share that exact description absolutely and so it was always i would in the early days of being, I was the first female to work on the electric promotion staff. There were a few women out there, but not many. And um, I made a vow to myself that I would never cross the line into the personal, the sexual, with any band member, with any crew member of any band, or with anyone in radio. I really felt like I had to set um, a very high bar of behavior for myself um, in, in that regard when it went to any interpersonal relationships. I wasn't going to ever be accused of getting that job or getting that ad because I slept with the program director or have a reputation among band members that I was um, an, easy, an easy mark. The, the, so, the accusations I, I, still come because they came with me too, but at least you can deny them and know, you know, like when you're a woman in that business, everybody's always going to make that accusation. Oh, a- absolutely. Yeah. And, and it was, um, I, I was just going to make sure that it, that it just never, I, that was a line I did not cross. And I know other women that did. I mean, I, I remember going out to dinner years later um, after, uh, after my initial years in, in the game. And um, 
I went out with a program director and and, and I was working a I was working um, a single that should have gone on his radio station and he knew it. It was already top 10. And then he has this record, brand new band out of the blue, no proven track record, nothing. So we went out to dinner. I was like, what the fuck, man? You know, we were friendly and I wasn't like holding his feet to the way. What's going on here, man? And I was like, hey, why'd you add that record? And he was like, well, she gave me a blowjob. <laughs> There you go. Like, well, okay. I was like, okay. And I never spoke to her again. Like, fuck you, man. Fuck you. You couldn't get that ad other than, you know, going down on him. You piece of shit. <laughs> never spoke to her again. I was, she was dead to me. It's, it's really, it's really crazy that, you know, it's a difference in the industry, not only in the music industry, but I think in any industry is that, you know, men, when they're climbing the ladder, it, it doesn't happen very often that they can sleep their way to the top because there aren't that many female executives, more now than were before. But especially for a woman in rock and roll, if you if you didn't kind of draw that line... I realized it early on, you know, when I first started, I had gone on some dates with, you know, guys and bands because they were the only people I really knew. And then I was like, you know what? This is just, you can't shit where you eat. Like that's, you just can't do it. If you want to be taken seriously, you just can't do it. And it's just, that's a difference that I think a lot of guys don't understand is that the women have to make that conscious decision of if I want to be taken seriously, I can't date people in my industry because- the women who were famous women in rock and roll groupies you know yeah it was just part of the part of the scenery yeah the famous the women in rock that you could look at you know were um you know blondie debbie harry joan jett stevie nicks like you you heart like you could name them on two hands and that was it whereas there were just countless guy rock bands out there and so the women were the eye candy especially once mtv launched and they could put girls you know in crop tops in their videos it was like then it you know you'd start talking about motley Crue videos and stuff it's like there you go yeah so tell me about tell me about working records in the heyday because you like in the 60s and 70s rock and roll was still underground and still fringe and still dangerous and in the 80s, early to mid-80s, it all of a sudden became what was popular. Marketable. Yeah. Marketable. You can make money on it. Yeah. Money and, was being made. And it and was... Advertising started cashing in. Yeah, and it was fashionable. Yeah, it was cool. And you could sell products using rock and roll. But I think the first movie to use contemporary rock was uh, Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. He used, he used um, the Derek and the Dominoes, Layla soundtrack. It was the, on the jukebox in the bars that the, the crew hung out in. But, but rock, rock had never been used as the bed, the musical bed, you know, except for movies about rock like Woodstock, you know, but that was, but as far as fictional movies were concerned, Dramatic renditions, they never use. And the, the, 79 was when, I think, when Mean Streets came out. And and I remember um, going to see that movie and just, um, it was before that, I think. I don't know. 
sorry, means I, I have my dates wrong, I think, on Mean Street's release. But I remember being stunned at, at rock music being. And then it was after that, it started to become after that, that advertising started using rock songs. And then I felt like they had taken something that was mine away. <laughs> it wasn't you know? special anymore. Like, it wasn't exclusive. It wasn't your, exactly. It wasn't ours. Right. You know, it became, it became mass appeal. And that was disappointing. And then by the mid eighties, it was like, don't understand. people don't, people today don't understand that it was, it was forbidden yeah. and it was, it was, um, it was very, um, not, it was, it was a tribe. It was tribal. It, it so defined it was, you. I remember being in high school and like the shirt that you wore, the concert that you went to said something about you as a person. It defined you. It was marking, it was like wearing the jersey of your favorite sports team. Like right. it was marking your tribe. This is where I belong. These are my people. Well, that's when it started to become a marketing tool. But even before that, it wasn't a marketing tool. So all you had was the music because, you know, very, you know, bands didn't have the merch like they do now right. or even in the 80s. They just didn't have it. So when you were coming of age and that's when there was money to be made selling merch. And that's when bands started to have like big merch businesses. Going in into Boston on the train to get on the T to go to downtown Boston, to go to Stairway to Heaven, to buy band t-shirts. Yeah. For a suburb kid, that was, unless you could actually go to the concert to get the shirt, there was no other kind of place to go. And Stairway to Heaven in Boston was this place where you could go and not only get music, but like you could get all the gear, the pins and the patches. And, and it was like you were going to buy bits for a uniform. Well, Newberry Comics sold all that stuff too. Yeah. And that's what, you know, they started out as a comic book store and they were able to survive the, 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 the digital revolution in the late nineties because they had adapted to become a lifestyle store. So rock no, was no longer underground by the mid eighties. It was becoming a lifestyle because it was marketable and because of lava lamps and, and pins and buttons and t-shirts and posters you know, so that's that was an evolution in in how rock became mainstream, I think, part of the evolution. So what bands were you working for the label like in the mid 80s besides Dawkin? <laughs> well, Dawkin was first and then Motley Crue, um, Girls, 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 Girls was um, theater. Actually, it was Theater of Pain with um, Home Sweet Home, which was massive. I was with them in Glens Falls, New York. Their tour manager called me up and said, we were staying in a hotel in Albany, driving up to Glens Falls. Tour manager said, why don't you come with me in the band? Because um, it was snowing out. So we drive up in, the, in a limo and I'm with the band. And we went down into the driveway of the arena and down a driveway into the underground garage. And kids were lining the sides of the driveway and they jumped onto the hood of the limo 
and were jumping up and down on the limo and we were all crouched down thinking that they were going to break through, break through the roof. And, um, that was, um, that was a rough crowd. Glens Falls, New York, rough. Cause that was a <laughs> hockey arena. A lot of toothless guys up there from playing hockey. It was, it, and it was winter and it was bleak and it was cold. And that was, uh, that was, uh, that was an interesting gig. I, I auditioned for the high school musical singing Home Sweet Home. That was the song I sang. <laughs> I obviously did not get the part because I cannot sing. But yeah, I gave I, it a shot. Um, and that was what? That was like 85, I think. I was always working docking records, always working a Motley, Motley Crue record dock. And the only records that got played on the top 40 stations at the time were power ballads. Yeah. If you had a power ballad, a rock band could get on the radio. That's how um, Motley Crue got on the radio. That's how Dawkins got on the radio. That's how White Snake got on the radio. That's how Tesla got on pop radio with with um, um, Modern Day Cowboy. No, they didn't oh, get love on the song. Love song. Yeah, love song. I still love that. That's a band that I still, I mean, I love all the bands you're talking about, but Tesla, I think is just so underrated as a band. They're just so fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and um, I did at Electra, some of the bands that I worked, I worked the first, the, not the first um, Metallica record. I worked um, Ride the Lightning and I I couldn't get a play. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. That's not our audience. That's, you know, that we're not playing that shit. Metallica was scary for everybody when they hit. It, it changed everything. Metallica didn't get played on the radio until Enter Sandman in 1989. And they, they put out their first record in 83 in, in the United States. And, um, yeah, I couldn't, I, I couldn't get Metallica played. I couldn't get uh, Metal Church played. Um, and, like I said, the only songs that really made it on pop radio um, and I couldn't get them played on, on, you know, certain rock stations because they weren't cool. You know, cool bands came from the UK, but, but rock bands out of LA or, or they just, you know, forget it. They, I, in fact, te- regarding Tesla, I did a, I did a blindfold test with Carter Allen at WBCN. They never played Tesla. They're a hair band. We don't play hair bands. And, and so I walked in one day and I played, I don't, um, I can't remember the song that I played him, but it was, hey, I've got something new to play you. I want you to check it out. See if you think it's right for the station. I play it for him. He goes, that sounds like, like a Zeppelin track. And I said, well, it's not. And this is, you know, we, Tesla had already had like three big hits out on the radio. And BCN never played him. And then I told him it was Tesla and he was shocked. And you're right. You're right about them. They were... They were they were sons of Zeppelin and and they got lumped into the poison. They went out with with poison once on a on a I big saw them tour. open up for Bon Jovi. Yeah, that was the first it, time I saw them live. Yeah, they opened up for Def Leppard. My first, in fact, when I I went uh, I was with Electra Records from eighty four to eighty seven, and then I went to um, Geffen courted me and I went to work for Geffen, and the first records I unpacked at Geffen still vinyl. Um, were um, Aerosmith Permanent Vacation and Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction. I remember coming into my my new office at at my old WIA office, but I just 
had to relocate offices and there were stacks of, of 25 count cartons of vinyl waiting for me. And I unpacked those two records and that became 1987. The, the years that I worked at Geffen were insane. Well, that's what and, I was going to ask you when you talk about bands like Motley Crue. Are the stories true? We've seen the dirt. We've read the book. We saw the movie. We've heard the stories. As a woman working rock promotion with these bands in the 80s, with a front row seat of Motley Crue in their heyday, was it as crazy as we all imagine it to be? Well, because of my, uh, I, I wasn't, I never hung out with the bands. Very few bands did I hang out with. And, and it's, you know, the, the, I spent some time with Motley Crue, but it was in, at, on, I was really professional. You know, I was there to facilitate interviews. So I would take them to AAF, to BCN, to V66, the 24 hour video channel we had here at the time that was competing with MTV. Um, but, and the only person in that band that I could really talk to was Nikki because he, he was verbal and he was smart. And I was with Vince once and driving from Worcester to Boston and back had nothing to say. He had, I wasn't, you know, a stripper. So I didn't, it seemed to me that, that, you know, there were certain kinds of women that they hung out with. And I wasn't that kind of a rock chick. I was a different kind of a rock chick. I wasn't, I didn't have a boob job. I didn't, I didn't have, you know, I just, I wasn't that kind of chick. So, um, and I never aspired to be, and I didn't dress or look the part. So I, I just did my job. You know, my job was to get them on the radio and I'll get you on the radio and I'll get you interviews. And if you want to do it, we'll do it. So that's, um, but the, yeah, I think the stories were true. Their tour manager was really good to me, very professional. And um, back in the days before Ticketmaster, promotion people had to go and buy with a, with a company check. All right, we're buying 100 tickets to this show. So you'd have to go to the, to the Providence Civic Center box office or the Worcester Centrum box office or whatever they're called now, or to Great Woods. And, and you had to go to the box office or the Orpheum Theater, buy your tickets. So you walked out of the box office with a stack of tickets. And, and then you would come to the radio stations, and that's how the radio stations got the tickets to give away yeah, on the air. Yeah, you brought them out like cards. All right, this radio station's getting three pair. This one's getting five pair. This one's getting two pair. You know, you just, like, worked out your budget, who was getting what tickets, and divvied them out. And um, I was there was a problem with the, the tickets for Motley Crue once, and the tour manager, again, invited me to come from the hotel because they were doing a meet and greet. So he said, all right, we're going to do the meet and greet before the show. And this was, I think this was the theater of pain tour when Tommy Lee had the, the circus, the, the drum kit on the, on the. Yeah. Cause then it was girls, girls, girls that it was on the roller coaster. Right. There were like different tours where you right. got girls, different girls, levels girls. of suspension of the drum right. set. Girls, girls, girls had Tommy Lee in the revolving drum kit. And they were playing the Providence Civic Center. The tour manager calls me up at the hotel. We're on our way over. Do you want to ride? I know you have a lot of tickets to pick up. And I don't want you on the street by yourself. Wow. He knew, he knew how dangerous it could be for me. 
Yeah. So I, that was really kind of him because I was picking up tickets once in Hartford and um, the box office manager, there were scalpers outside and they knew I was picking up tickets because they followed me into the box office and they knew I had a sizable number of tickets for a show. And I knew I was going to get mugged. And I asked the box office manager to let me in and she wouldn't let me in because it was a union house. And I said, I'm going to get mugged outside because they know I have these tickets. So she sent two guys from house from the house out with me and walked, they walked me to my car. But it was, it was, um, you know, back in the days before Ticketmaster, before the digital world, we were easy marks if people knew what was going on. And those guys, those guys at the, in, in Hartford knew exactly what was going on. When you so. go and you, and you start working for Geffen, that year of 1987, we're in the midst of the lipstick hair bands kind of moment in rock and Guns N' Roses appetite for destruction was so different and so yep. raw and so dangerous. It wasn't pretty. It was, it was something else. And you had this front row seat because it was your job to try and go out and get radio stations to play Welcome to the Jungle, which was not an easy sell back then. People, you know, I tell people that now and they can't believe it, you know, because that record came out in 87. It's, it has stood the test of time. It's a fantastic but, record start to finish. Right. Yeah. And, but it had a contra. the first cover was controversial. It was, um, it looked, it appeared to be the rape of a robot. And it was. That artwork was ended up on the inside when they redid the, the cover art. They put the, the old cover on the inside, but it was very controversial. Well, it was, I was, when I took Guns N' Roses, Welcome to the Jungle into my territory geographically was the six states of New England. And because of the nature of the small geography here, you could go, you could, there were, there was a rock station every 35 miles. So you had a daisy chain effect. So if one station like AAF where you work started playing it with the cent with how central AAF signal was in New England, if you got AAF on a record, you got AQY in, in Springfield. From Springfield, you went to Albany. From Albany, you went down to um, Danbury, Connecticut, you know, and it was a daisy chain. Then from Boston, you had Providence and Manchester and Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and up to Portland, Maine. So it was a daisy chain. So if you got one station, you eventually got all of them, but not with Guns N' Roses because AAF was early on Guns N' Roses, as was WHCN in Hartford. And hold on. Sorry. Retired and still working. Well, no, I think it was spam, <laughs> it was spam actually. Sorry, I should have. Uh, I thought right. I had my phone off. It's all okay. good. Um, The, the Appetite for Destruction, Welcome to the Jungle, we launched in August of 87, July or August of 87. And I think in New England, there were very few stations in the country that would play it. And um, WHCN in Hartford had a female music director, and she said, this is great, and I'm going to play it. I don't care about the cover. I don't care about the controversy. This is great rock. And, and eventually, I think AAF came on board. Yeah, very, very early on, because Duff told me that story about how AAF was was really, really early getting 
Guns N' Roses on the air and that the band, like they remembered those stations that were early because there weren't that many of them that were there to support the band when the record first came out. Right. And it was the video of Welcome to the Jungle that sold a million units of the band. So by the beginning of 1988, with MTV having sold, put that album platinum, we relaunched the record at Rock Radio. And this time it clicked because you can't argue with a million units sold when you never played a record. So people, programmers that were saying to me, this is not our audience said, well, I better, I better, I better get on board because a million people have bought this record and they're probably a lot of my listeners. So I look stupid. So that's, that's when Welcome to the Jungle went to number one. Then uh, by summer of 88, we released Sweet Child of Mine. And that even got played on pop radio because they were so huge, so huge. I remember even some of the more rhythmic, rhythmic um, top 40 stations, um, dig, you know, digging in and just saying, all right, we got to play this. We hate it, but we're going to play it. And they only relegated it to nighttime. And one of the things that was your job, as you're talking about, is like taking the bands to record store in stores to do autograph signings and coordinating radio station promotions and meet and greets with the fans. So in the early days of Guns N' Roses, you're taking these guys out, just trying to get them played on the radio and build a fan base. Well, their first gigs here in, in New England, they played the paradise. And I, I, I missed that show because I had Aerosmith playing in Portland, Maine. And they also did an in-store. Guns N' Roses did an in-store in the fall of 87, October of 87. I was with Aerosmith in Portland, Maine. They were playing the arena there. And members of the, the We of Boston team took Guns N' Roses to Strawberries on Route 1 in Saugus, where they did an in-store. And then they played the Paradise that night. And then they came back a few months later and played the Orpheum. And it, I think it was in, in October of 87 that they played the Orpheum and Slash agreed to do interviews. And AAF was playing the record, but WBCN was not. But because of the WBCN. Famous, the famous radio yeah. rivalry and that back then yeah. AAF was just this relegated Worcester station that right. didn't have so the geography I, to be able to fight. You had to you had to go to BCN first, regardless of whether or not they were playing a band or not. So I took Slash to WBCN. He was interviewed by Tammy Heidi on the afternoon show, and he got in my car. I had graduated from Subaru to Saab. <laughs> Slash was sitting in the front seat of my car, and he looked at me, and his hands were shaking as he lit a cigarette in the front seat of my car, and he looked at me, and he said, Karen... Where's, where's the next station? I said, it's about a 40 minute drive. So we have 40 minutes there and back. I've got a show tonight and we'll probably be at the station for an hour. So he was working it out how long we were going to be. And he said, I can't do it. I was like, what? What? Here's the only station playing the record. And he's bailing out. And he's done an interview with the station that's not playing his record. And I said, I try to bargain with him. Um, I was like, how about I, I, you lay down in the back seat, 
we go get a bottle of Jack. You, we get your guitar, go to the hotel, get your guitar. He said, I, I just got to play. I got to restring my guitars. I got to play. I have to do the same thing every day while I'm on tour or I just get fucked up and I want to be good for the show tonight. And quite frankly, Karen, I got a drink. And when I saw his hand shaking as he, he was 21 years old and he had out, he, it was like he had alcohol DTs and I, my heart broke and I just said, okay, I'll take you back to the hotel. Cause I had just been, I had just stopped drinking at that point after 18 years of drinking hard. And when I saw his hand shaking, I was like, I know that. I know that. So he told me years later when I interviewed him that the original famous slash top hat got stolen in Boston. Were you with him when that happened? Because they never found his original hat. He told me that it got stolen. I here. That that happened, but I wasn't, you know, it might have happened at the Orpheum because that night they played the Orpheum and it might have happened there or at the Paradise before. But I, I, I don't specifically remember that. Um, I wasn't around when that happened. I'm trying to imagine Guns N' Roses at the Paradise, which for anybody listening to this that's not from the Boston area, the Paradise is this little club that holds maybe 300 people if you coat them in bacon grease and squeeze them through the door. And it's a, just a famous rock club that's been there forever, but it's not well, they big. Also played, they also played on that tour. It was so much fun. They are On that same tour in the summer of 87, they also played a joint in um, Providence called The Living Room. I love and The Living Room. I love The Living Room. And it was so crazy and crowded in there that there were uh, water pipes up across the ceiling, heating and water pipes. And there were kids that wrapped themselves up around the pipes and were dangling with their legs crossed and, and their arms crossed just hanging, hanging from literally from the pipes and the rafters. That's what they used to do with the channel in Boston too. Another famous place that you would just go to a show and it would just get out of hand. I saw James Brown at the channel. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. It was a tuna can and I, I didn't see him. I was just engulfed by heads and shoulders, but, but I got my groove on baby. Somebody thought it was a good idea to put a rock club on a pier over the Harbor. Because there was a big parking lot. And you could go there and... Oh, I have a great story. I have a great story about uh, the band X when I worked at Elektra. Um, X, the seminal punk band from LA. Yeah. Um, they, they sold the channel out. And allegedly, um, the band told me that um, they, when they went to settle the show, that the house manager said, oh, you were you were a hundred tickets shy of selling out and you couldn't move in the room. So when they, when they left the, the premises in their tour bus, they pulled their, their tour bus shitter right in front of the front door of the channel and dumped out the contents of their latrine in front of, because they didn't get paid their bonus. So for anybody that doesn't know, when you settle a show at the end of the night, it's the tour manager's job. And that's where they sit down and figure out how many tickets got sold um, the, the building gets a percentage of the merchandise that the artists sell inside the building. So it's where they do all the math, all the business. And back in the day, those bands and that tour manager would leave with an envelope full of money. Now, all you know, it's done all electronically now, but settling up the show was one of the most important jobs for the tour manager because 
the bands needed that money to be able to keep the tour going. And that's where the money came from to pay the roadies and to put gas in the bus and all of that stuff. And, and there are so many stories of famous fights of bands getting screwed out of money or, um, I mean, it happened in almost famous, didn't it? And then they had to drive the bus through the gate, even in the movie. Yeah. Like this is just a famous rock thing of the settling of the show at the end of the night. And obviously X breaks the cardinal rule of pooping on the bus because you're not supposed to do that. Well, they do. <laughs> so you're, you get guns and roses to the point where they're guns and roses. Like they went, they go from being this new band on Geffen to being guns and roses as we right. know them so, now. So within six months, they sold a million units without, without any appreciable radio. And back then, if you didn't have radio, you didn't have a hit. So MTV was very instrumental in breaking guns and roses to the point where American radio had to play them. And, and, so that and by summer of '88, they were out on the road with Aerosmith as their opening act, and I remember sitting at um, with Slash and Duff at the in the catering area of uh, Great Woods, and they were too big even to do any meet and greets back then. It was just we called it off. It was just stupid because it was out of control, and they were really it was just it was mayhem. And you, so many people would want to go. You were just going to piss people off. And it was, you know, security and it was nutty. So we didn't do any meet and greets. And then it was Aerosmith's show. They were the headliner. At home. At home. And we were sitting in catering. And, and I, the, the modesty of those guys at that time was phenomenal. They were such sweet, modest guys. I adored them. They were so nice and so sweet. We were sitting in catering and I was with Duff and Slash. And I said, you know, this album is going to stand the test of time. And it's, and, and when I, and, and I said, it's going to be as relevant 30 years from now as it is now. And Slash had been putting a, a, a beverage up to his mouth. And when I said it's going to stand the test of time and being around 30 years from now, he, he went, it just went in an arc out of his mouth. And he was like, cut the shit, Karen, cut the shit. Wow. I can't believe you just said that. That's really, I can't, I just can't believe that's going to happen. You were right. Yeah. And in fact, when my, my, my nephew was in, in college and he was in college, I think in the early nineties, so this is, uh, or late 90s, a decade, two, two decades after, 20 years after Appetite for Destruction comes out. My nephew's going to college. And I said, what album do you hear most of the time on your dorm floor? And he thought about it. And he was like, Appetite for Destruction. And I was like, da-da. It's, it's amazing how you can look back at like Guns N' Roses opening for Aerosmith. And, like, I remember seeing Soundgarden open up for Guns N' Roses. Like, you yeah, look back at... Religion tour. Yeah, like, you look yeah. back at these bands that became so huge, but they had to come from somewhere. So just the concept of Guns N' Roses playing the Paradise and opening up for Aerosmith is just so crazy to think of now. Well, I'm that... Um, I think it was a year later, there was a stadium tour with Aerosmith 
headliner, Guns N' Roses and Deep Purple. And it was a stadium tour. And Aerosmith was flying around on a private jet because that's how they could stay clean and sober. They would, they would, they used the hub and the spoke theory of, of they wouldn't be on a bus and traveling from gig to gig. They would, their, their booking agent would cluster their gigs in a certain radius so that they could fly and come home every night and they would fly to the gig the next day. So, um, they were playing, um, giant stadium in, in New Jersey. And they invited me to bring, um, seven people. They would have their jet fly us down from Logan airport, the private plane area of Logan airport to, um, Teterboro airport in New Jersey. And, um, it was a beautiful summer night. I think it was June of either I'm getting my years mixed up 88 or 89. And, um, we, their, their pilot probably did something quite illegal and he took us up 10,000 feet and down 10,000 feet in seconds. And we, you could feel the gravity pulling against your face. There's eight of us screaming like kids in, in that, in that jet. It was, it was a great night. And at that show, the great Dale Dorman, who was the afternoon DJ at Kiss 108, was one of the people that, that was with us. And Dale, they gave us a private box at Giant Stadium to watch the show. And during Guns N' Roses set, it was so crazy that they set on, on the floor of the arena there were all these fights breaking out and you could see this vortex of people and a pugilism fight. There were three flights on, fights on the floor going on at the same time. And Dale Dorman was standing up in our booth going like Caesar, you know, yes, no, like they were gladiators. And then they set fire to a, to a, a, a concession stand on the floor and the show continued to go on. It was during Guns N' Roses set. And then it was just, it was, that's how, that's how crazy it was. There's nothing more rock and roll than a private jet. I only did it once. I felt like a goddamn rock star. It was unbelievable. Yeah, it was fun. It was great. It was really nice of them to do that. So it was cool. What are Their management was, Aerosmith lived here and their management was here and I was the Geffen rep. So it was just a wonderful perk of, of, uh, of the gig. What are some of the other artists that you worked with, not only through like the end of the eighties and early nineties, like the use your illusion era, but obviously we know right around 91 that music changed again. And there's another struggle of trying to get bands on the radio and a different genre. And so when you look back at that era, like what other bands were you working at radio and driving around trying to get played and going to meet and greets and stuff? Well, um, back in right before I left Electra, one of the one of the two of the wonderful, wonderful bands that I worked at, at the end of my uh, four years at Electra were The Cure. I worked the Head on the Door tour. And, and, and then they played Great Woods and sold that out. So they had a show at the Orpheum and they were held up at the Canadian border because they're British and they were going from Toronto to Boston and they got held up at Logan airport for four hours and the Orpheum show was sold out and they got word that they would get there if we could be patient. And so people sat there from seven o'clock and I think they came on stage at 1030 
or you know, they came, we sat there for three and a half, four hours waiting for the cure at a sold out Orpheum show. And they finally got through customs and they came to the gig and they were magnificent. And then a few months later, that record was so big. They played Great Woods and had a sold out show there. And that too was, they were incredible musicians. And um, Robert Smith, the lead singer of The Cure was one of the nicest artists I've ever worked with. He, at a meet and greet, he, um, a fan that came with um, a music director, um, Stephen Strick from WBCN brought one of his friends who was an aspiring musician who also, um, he had a tape with him on cassette of his band. And at the meet and greet, he handed it to Robert Smith. And I thought, well, there's that, you know, that's gonna be left in the dressing room or three months later, he got a letter from Robert Smith critiquing and giving him suggestions because he had listened to his tape and Robert Smith wrote him back, which I thought was incredible. When, when, when Stephen from WBCN told me that his friend heard from Robert Smith, I almost, I almost, I, my jaw dropped. I was just like, that is so cool. It's not the first time yeah. I've heard that he's a really great guy. I've never great met guy. him, but, but I've heard he's an amazing guy. Great guy. And the other band that I had a one, my favorite thing about doing this job is being on the ground floor of a band like Guns N' Roses, being on the ground floor. And then, you know, they're, they sell a hundred million records in three years or something like, you know, it's crazy. And one of the other bands that I was on the ground floor of that had a very, very, very big hit in the late eighties was the Georgia Satellites. Yep. And they had a, a, a number one hit in America called Keep Your Hands to Yourself. And it crossed over from rock to top 40 because it was just one of those fun rock songs. And being on the ground floor of that band, who they were, they were such great guys. And Dan Baird, the lead singer of the band, um, could interview himself. He was so loquacious and such a talker and had such charm and personality. There were a couple of radio stations and he was game on like, yeah, I'll go anywhere. Let's go. He'd get in the car and go to five radio stations with me in one day and then do a show that night. And I could, he, he, if somebody was flat footed in an interview, if a DJ just was not prepared or didn't have any game, he could interview himself and make it a good interview. He was astonishing at doing that. It was great. And then another band that I was on the ground floor of, um, it was the Black Crows. Uh, yeah, um, that that record came out at in the beginning of 1990, and I was worn out. The Geffen years um, were were 88, 87, 88, 89 were so intense. I was working Cher, Don Henley, Enya, White Snake, Aerosmith, Tesla. Guns and Roses, it was exhausting. And I was like, oh man, I'm fucking tired. And I'm, you know, I'm in my early 30s. It's like, geez, I'm tired. And I thought it's time to do something else in the business. And then I got an advanced cassette of the Black Crow's first album, Shake Your Money Maker. And I was like, oh, they they put like in the Sopranos, ah, they pulled me back in. It's like that so, adrenaline shot from Pulp Fiction right into the heart with the needle. It's yeah. that record to me, cause I graduated from high school in 1990. So the soundtrack of my college years is shake your money maker, Southern harmony and the musical companion in America. Like yeah. that, that era of my life is 
the soundtrack is is the Black Rose. Period. End of story. Full stop. Yeah. Well, there was also the the the, the chronology of the Black Crows in that those first three albums. There was something else going on then, and it was grunge. And the Black Crows came out in '90, and then Pearl Jam came out a little bit after that, and a little bit after that, by 91, 92, was Nirvana. And all of a sudden, there was a dividing line at rock. You're either the classic rock station, and the Black Crows were blues-based, therefore, they were the classic rock band. And then there's the alternative stations, and then Pearl Jam and Nirvana became alternative bands. And it was only because of that dividing line of 1991 that the Black Crows did not get played on alternative radio. And I tried like hell. And I would argue vehemently with people that I knew loved the band who were program directors at alternative stations, loved the Black Crows, but I can't play them. But they would play Cheryl Crow, who had songs that sounded exactly like something off Southern Harmony and they would play her, but not the crows. Well, they're there. And I can remember this work in work in Philadelphia and there's a, a long-term 50 year old, almost 50 year old radio station, their rock station, WMMR. And it's always been what it is. One of the few in the country that's always been what it is. You know, WBCN came and went WNEW came and went. You know, a lot of the a lot of the great rock stations, WHFS in Washington D.C. There's very CCC few heritage. in Hartford. Like, yeah, there's yeah, only a handful of those stations that are left. Yeah, yeah. There's WXRT in Chicago, thank God. There's but there's not many left that are that play everything, all rock. So the Black Crows had the onus of coming out right before Pearl Jam and Nirvana within the same time period because I can remember having a conversation with Chris Robinson, the lead singer of the Black Crows, when the Nirvana record came out. And we were, we, we both said, this is fucking groundbreaking. This band is going to change everything. This is brilliant. And it, it, it but it, it, the grunge, the era of grunge, which was not blue, really blues based. Um, it, it, it usurped um, a lot of what, it was everything that the 80s couldn't be. It was stripped down. It was, you know, the dirty clothes you've been wearing for three days, and now you're going to go on stage. And so if you were a band that had stage clothes, if you were a band that sang harmonies, if you were a band that did any of those things, it wasn't cool to the grunge movement because grunge was supposed to be the antithesis of the polished 80s. And they were one of those bands and, and they, like and, Tesla and they, that got stuck in the middle. And they also weren't, they also, musically, they weren't blues based. Right. They, it, it was darker, you know, it was, um, you know, they sang about, you know, daddy chaining them up to the fucking radiator, you know, and, and that was, it was dark. And, and it was, I, I, I look at that whole period of time from like 92 to the early 2000s as being a real, a, a kind of a, I remember somebody saying to me like Hoobastank was a rock band. I'm like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's not rock. It's dirge, you know? And, and I respect all those bands, but it's, to me, it's not rock 
for me, rock is more shake your fanny blues based, like, you know, it's Hendrix and it's, and it's stuff that's, that's visceral and passionate, but not whining about daddy chain to the radiator. Well, this is the era that I started in rock radio because right. I started at AAF as an intern in 91 and I remember in those early years, it was Extreme and the Damn Yankees and Warrant and Trickster and Firehouse and Bon Jovi. And I mean, the first Rates rock. New. And yeah. then Creed. Well, that's... I, remember, I, I remember calling up. I remember hearing Creed on, um, on AAF and I was in the car and I called up your production director. And I, I said, what an amazing job you did on that parody you did of Pearl Jam. And he was like, <laughs> What are you talking about? And I was like, that song. What was the first Creed song? My own prison. My own prison. And I was, I thought it was a parody of Pearl Jam that your production director did because he was he was a a remarkable production person. And um, and he was like, no, Karen, it's a it's a new band called Creed. I'm like, oh my god, oh this is what rock. It was it was depressing to me. That's what rock came to. And then, but for me. Like I always, I I was obviously all in with the eighties. And then when grunge happened, I was on the side of um, the Alice in Chains and the Soundgarden because it was more heavy metal to me. And I liked it because it was darker and heavier and, and Pearl Jam too. But it took me a while to get into Nirvana. I didn't respect Pearl Jam until I went to see him. Yeah. Because they exploded so quickly. I thought, it's, it's, this is hype. And then I went to see him. And I saw him at the Boston Garden before it, be, you know, in the, before it got ripped down and rebuilt. And I lost my mind. Yeah. And, they, and I didn't realize until I saw him live that they were blues-based. Because it was all, it was the rhythm section. It was, it was I, I was so tuned in to their drummer and their bass player and I, it was, it was bitter cold out. It was in January of 91 or two. And I came out of the Boston garden and it was like 10 below zero outside. I had icicles coming off my hair. Cause I was soaking wet. It was, I was, it was, it was. And then I went, I saw them every time I could because they were a great band. Did you? And, I, and you could dance to them. Were you at that outdoor free show that AAF did in Lowell with the Black Crows? Oh yeah, that I was. I believe the Polish American Beach Club in Gardner. (laughs) The one in Lowell, we decided as a station that we were going to do a big free show, and we expected we got a permit. It was on you know city property, and we expected like ten thousand people to show up for a free Black Crow show. Danny Glover. uh, no, Cor- Danny Glover, Corey Glover from Living Color had gone out and done a solo record. He played and it shut down the city of Lowell and 40,000 people showed up to see yeah, the Black was, Crows. That was kind of scary, actually. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And every I just remember everybody going because I think I had just started on the air or I was on the street team back then. And it was like, what the fuck is going on? Free rock, man. Free rock. Yeah. And then mid to late 90s, when I started on the air, this whole other movement of music showed up. The tools, 
the corns, this rage, like this heavy, it wasn't grunge. It was something else. It was, it was like speed metal, but not. Yeah. 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 That was, um, at that point in time, I had, I, in, in, in the progression of my career, the, um, I was at Geffen from 87 to 92 and working with like such disparate artists as um, like mainstream Don Henley and then Whitesnake, Tesla, Guns N' Roses, Aerosmith. Um, and then from Rick Rubin had Deaf American Records, which had a deal distributing and promote distribution and promotion through Geffen. So that's how I came to work the Black Crows along with Danzig and Slayer. So I was, and, and those, those bands like never got played on the radio, forget about it. And I, it was, it was, and then from, from there, um, I, I, I lost my job at Geffen uh, in a corporate uh, merger. And, um, and it was, and, and I left Geffen um, under really shitty circumstances. I was shown the door and, um, Rick Rubin hired me to work at Duff American. So I worked the Sir Mix-a-Lot record and I was still with the Black Crows and, um, and the J there were a lot of cool bands on, on driving Sir Mix-a-Lot in around Cleveland, Ohio in a, in, in a, in a big ass Chevy. It was, um, he was so much fun. Such a great guy. Baby's got back. So I didn't know until recently when I spoke to Aaron Jones, who's from Seattle who's discovered by Sir Mix-a-Lot that Sir Mix-a-Lot was not just this baby got back guy, but that he really is this taste making music ear. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was a very, very cool guy and, and Mr. Entertainment and just jovial and fun and smart. I loved him. Loved him. That was the only, that was the only promo tour I did with him. He was doing a promotion with the, the Deaf American, we, the promotion department had made a, a, a big balloon of a big ass. So, so we had a, we had to send the big ass balloon and have it heliumed up. It was massive. It was like, you know, a, a story high and a, it was like the size of a garage. It was a pair of big asses in a balloon. So anytime he did a promo outing, the balloon. Literally went. the big ass balloon got flooded. <laughs> Yeah. So where did you go after Geffen? So you went to, to Deaf American. Deaf American. And I worked there for five years. I worked. Um, and then um, um, I was with the Black Crows, the Jayhawks, Sir Mix-a-Lot, DJ Cool, Let Me cl- Clear My Throat. Had that. Frank Black from the Pixies had a solo record out there. And then I think the most auspicious uh, opportunity I had in, in my years at Deaf American um, was working Johnny Cash's American recordings. So um, I got to spend um, time with Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash. And that was a privilege and an honor and what amazing people they were. Um, I saw him at Carnegie Hall, did a gig. um, He did a small meet and greet with a couple of people at Carnegie Hall. And um, I was with him um, at AVH1 taping. and. it was hosted by, um, it was hosted by VH1, and it wasn't a behind the music, but it was 
it was a live show in a very, in a small theater at the Manhattan Center, um, right near um, Port Authority. And, um, and we were leaving the venue. He had done the show, the house cleared out, his tour manager comes up from outside and the house manager says, there's a lot of people out front. There's probably a thousand people out front. You can't go out front. So we had Johnny's car, Johnny and June's car circle back to the back side of the building. And this, this, the Manhattan Center is so huge that there's a huge performance theater, two-story theater with a balcony and a GA. It's a huge place. So the, we had to get in a freight elevator and go up nine stories and cross the block from 34th to 35th Street and cross the building on, and, and then go down again down the freight elevator to the back to the backstage door where Johnny's car was waiting and there was no, was no crowd there. And I get in the elevator with them. So it's me, the tour manager, Johnny and June, and there's uh, the freight elevator operator. And Johnny Cash was so exceedingly polite. He asked the gentleman his name and the gentleman said, well, sir, my name is Walter. And he looked at me and said, Karen and Walter, will you join June and I in song? And we're going up nine floors and they started singing, will the circle be unbroken? And we joined in with them. Yeah. Singing, will the circle be unbroken in a freight elevator with Johnny Cash and June Carter and a freight elevator operator. Yeah. I mean, that story, basically, I was going to ask you, can you tell me something about Johnny Cash? And that story answers the question. Yeah, he was, he and June were really beautiful people. And June had a conversation with me one day sitting in their dressing room. And I think it was at the David Letterman show. Um, I escorted them to the David Letterman show. And um, I, you know, I didn't have anything to do, but I was their label rep and he was promoting American recordings. So I just escorted him there. And um, I met them at the stage door. We went in and June starts talking to me. Uh, about the A&R person that discovered them at Geffen. And it was um, a woman and she had just signed a, a, a scouting deal and she and June became friends. The woman who found Guns N' Roses at clubs in LA 25 years later is working with June Carter Cash. How great is that? So she was such an interesting woman and so kind and a storyteller. And um, once they were doing um, a gig in Philadelphia and they, he had, he had done an interview, which he was, he didn't do many. He did an interview and I went to the gig and I'd gone to um, the Reading Terminal Market to the Amish Market in, in Philadelphia, downtown Philly. And I got them a, a, a gift basket of Amish chocolate covered pretzels. And I took them back to their dressing room. You think I would have handed them a million dollars. <laughs> The gratitude was, it was just like, oh my God, we love these. Thank you so much, Karen. That was so thoughtful of you. And then um, his manager at the at Lou Robin um, came up to me and he said, you have no idea how much they love those pretzels. And I was like, yeah, I was stunned at how they, excited they were to get them. He was like, that was really nice of you. These are the little things that for somebody like you doing what you do as a promotions person, 
you're you're in the front row. You're 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 not the rock star, but you're you're part of the machine. And these are the little pieces of information for your artists that you have to know. This is part of your job to know that Johnny and June Carter Cash like that they they like chocolate covered Amish pretzels. Yeah, but I didn't know that. So right. it was just like one of those, oh. But that's know, something that, that then you put in your brain and you go, oh, okay, now I know what they like. So that if I'm ever around them again or, I mean, with the artists that you've worked with, you got a Rolodex of what people's favorites are. <laughs> one, one of my favorite artists that I worked with who, it was Cher. I mean, she was, you know, she's been famous since she was 15 when she was in Phil Spector's Wall of Sound, when Sonny and Cher came out with I Got You, Babe. That was 1965, I think. So I'm working with Cher right after Moonstruck has come out, and she's nominated for an Academy Award. And, and her first Geffen record called Cher comes out. And um, she hadn't been on the radio. She was persona non grata at radio. She hadn't had a hit on the radio in eight to 10 years. And... So she makes this record, comes out on Geffen, and I took it to Kiss 108, where the great Sonny Joe White was a program director, um, an out gay man. And I went into his office and I said, Sonny, I've got a new single from Cher, and it's called I Found Someone. And he puts it on, on, on the, the, the turntable in his office, and he went on the radio every day from 11 to noon. And I got into my car and I think this was 1988 and I had a cell, I had a a cell phone back then. And it was the size of a Kleenex tissue box. It was huge. Yeah. And it had a carrying case, which, you know, a shoulder strap. I got into my car and I called the Geffen office in LA and it was eight o'clock in the morning out there. And I had, Sonny had just gone on the air. It was 11 o'clock. And he goes, ladies and gentlemen, I have a new record from Cher. And he starts playing the record. And I'm in my car in the parking lot, freaking out. Because Sonny played Cher. And I get on the phone in my LA office. And I was like, Sonny's playing Cher! And I got the first ad in the country on Cher. And Sonny Joe White was also, and this will be disputed. But I know for a fact that Sonny broke the song by Enya, Sail Away, Sail Away, otherwise titled Orinoco Flow, which is used in so many commercials to this day. And Sonny Joe White played it on the radio and it blew up. And then everyone in in New England was playing it because Sonny Joe White played it. WBCN played it. And I said to Sonny, why are you playing this? And he said, because I want to fuck up WERS and WBCN and WZBC and all the college stations. I just want to keep them on their toes and fuck them up. We're not the only ones playing cool stuff. It's one of the things was, that I love was, uh, about radio as a DJ is that you had the ability when you loved something to be able to tell your audience I love this and I know you and I think you're going to love it too. And I, over my career, was able to do that a few times as well. And I just think that it's such a special thing and what is what makes radio so amazing is, is that ability to just go, you know what? Fuck it. I just, I like this. I want you to hear it. I think you're going to love it. 
and it changes the trajectory of an artist. Just that one radio station breaking an artist turns them from an artist nobody had heard of to who they become. It's just, it's an amazing thing to be able to do. And, and only radio has the ability to, to do that as regularly. Well, I mean, MTV could do it generationally, but radio was able to do it all the time. Well, uh, you too broke out of Boston because yeah. of Carterelli. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I was working record retail in Harvard square when the first U2 record came out and they, they, they came here from Ireland and they slept on the floor of my friend Anne Marie. And my friend Anne Marie Foley was another rock chick. She worked at Strawberries. I worked at Music City. We saw each other at shows all the time. And we all loved you. We all loved the boy album. Then they come and play here. They're playing The Rat. They played The Paradise. They slept on Anne Marie's floor. She made them lasagna. <laughs> and, yeah, and to this day, um, they're, they take care of her. Adam Clayton is a really, really good friend of hers. And that's from the early 70s. But, but Carter Allen was very instrumental in breaking that band because they, they broke out of Boston. And it was because of radio and retail here that they, we embraced them. They, were, they, they blew up. That was, so you're absolutely right. What and the radio they? doesn't, the only radio that's breaking any bands now really is Top 40. And, and, you know, I'm out of the game now for a couple of years, but even when I was still in the game, it, radio is so fractured and so format, narrowly formatted that I don't know. I don't like, I've never, I've never liked pop. Well, what's never funny about pop. pop radio now is that TikTok is breaking songs and forcing radios to play songs that are getting big on TikTok. Good. To the point where the labels are now cutting promotional deals with TikTok to get their songs exposed on the app because that's what's, breaking them now and and it seems that rock because the stations are going away unfortunately like my beloved waf that rock is now to a certain extent kind of going back underground and becoming dangerous the way that it was yeah like like that's where that's where it's headed because those big giant companies for the most part there's still a ton of great rock stations out there and there are companies that really value it but it is not they don't have they don't have big audience which is why corporate radio is abandoning them right they have they have niche audiences and and they're not in the demos that the advertisers want so that's the reason why you know WBCN went away and AAF went away and BRU and Providence went away and and just tons. Well, tons come on. Let, let me just say say this. Part of the reason why BCN went away is because AAF was kicking the shit out of them. I mean, let me oh, at least Ron Valeri will listen to this podcast, my old program director, and be like, Carrie, come on now. Did you lose your teeth? Like, put, take your fangs back out. Because that rivalry and that oh, that thing it was, was it was. It was um, you know, when it, being a promotion person in, in Boston in the 80s and the 90s was very difficult because it was very political. It was not only political among the radio stations because you had the, the, you had the, <clears throat> the alternative station with a very small signal, WFNX, <coughs> which was the first station to play Nirvana in the country. And then you had the rivalry of, of the two 50,000 watt rock stations, WAF and WBCN. And it was, it was, and then there was the retail competition 
you had Tower Virgin and Newberry Comics here, and they all wanted the in stores. So that was that was it was vicious. It was it was a very difficult period of time to do things promotionally without back to the story I told you about having Slash in the car and not going to AAF. I remember having to call the music director, Rick McKenzie at the time and saying, I'm not going to make it. I said, he can't do it. He wants to, but he can't. And a Geffen record was not added, added officially at WAF for one year. I was punished for not bringing Slash to the radio station. It's one but of I those. Made it I made it up to him in 91. It's one of those things that, you know, because I was on the receiving end of those calls, right? That when you're the music director and you, you set up promotions and build graphics and you're on the air promoting something and then all of a sudden you have to go on the air and say, Slash isn't coming. And the audience is like, what the fuck? The worst. It's the worst. And the I understand from the artist's perspective how these things can make the rest of their lives difficult. It's just a domino effect of... You know, especially with the stations that go out in front that are trying to help break this band. And then you're just like, ah, I, I've got I've got a, um, a feather to put in WAF's cap. Um, WAF was responsible for the song that Tesla covered live acoustically on the radio that hadn't been recorded yet. And they were trying to think of something to do when they came and performed on, on AAF and they just pulled the five man electrical band song signs out of their pocket and played it acoustically on the radio on AAF that day. And then that day, the black crows, that was the summer of 90 and the black crows were opening up for Aerosmith at great woods. So I drove Tesla down to great woods and had Tesla Aerosmith and the Black Crows, all at Great Woods together. And I have a Polaroid shot of all three bands together backstage. But that song blew up so much because AF recorded it. And then I was getting calls from Providence, from Hartford, from GIR in, in Manchester, New Hampshire, from WAQY in Springfield, Mass. There's the daisy chain effect. AF had something that no one else had. And everybody was asking me for it. And I was like, it's not our property. It's AAF's property. The band has never recorded it. They performed it live on the radio acoustically. So we called up Q Prime Management, their management company, and said, why don't you record a live album real fast? Because you're printing money here. You can print money. And then that song was, became a massive hit. Well, it turned it was, into the five-man acoustical jam album. Well, that was, that was, that was the record a live album and capitalize yeah. on this so that you can distribute it. And was mm -hmm. one of the records that showed entities like MTV that the unplugged thing was a viable outlet. And so you can draw that line from that Tesla performance to the five man acoustical jam to MTV unplugged pretty easily. Yep. Yeah. That was because I said, Hey, there's money to be made here. Yeah. That's the magic words. There's money to be made here. We did the same thing with Shine Down Simple Man years later. That it that it just took off and became this thing that 
turned into something else. It was like it was like a Frankenstein monster. You can take all the parts, but until the lightning strikes, it doesn't come alive. And then when it does, it's like, holy shit. One of the things in your life is that you're one of those people that always ends up in these places, like the freight elevator with Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash. What are some of the other experiences that you remember stopping and thinking for a split second? How the hell did I get here? Well, that, that, that was probably, that's, that's the number one memory. Um, but, um, I mentioned how much I enjoyed working with Cher. Yeah. And how famous she was. She, I mean, that woman has had so many peaks in her career, but this was nominated for an Academy Award with a hit movie and putting out a hit record for the first time in a decade and being taken seriously as, as an artist again, as a recording artist again. With a, new, with a and, whole new audience, with a whole new generation of fans, which is hard well, to do. Well, one of the things, I, I, she, because Sonny Joe White was the first person to put her record on the radio, she did a lot for him. She said to me, anything he wants, I'll be there for him. So she did a action committee benefit for him in, in the late 80s, and she performed at a KISS concert. And I think it was probably 89 or 90. And um, it was very hot and humid out. And there were, you know, the KISS concerts were a ton of artists performing basically to track. And um, she went out on, we were in a trailer. And, and, you know, they had all these trailers for the artists. Elton John was on that bill. Rod Stewart was on that bill. And this is before we had portable cell phones. So I was constantly running to the payphone in, in, at Great Woods because Cher wanted to know, What's Elton wearing? Try to find out what Elton's wearing. And then try to find out what song Rod's going to cover. So I'm calling promotion people up and going, hey, you know, you know, what's what's Rod going to do? You know, like what's Elton wearing? So we're sitting in her 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 trailer and it was very, 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 very humid and sticky out. And she had sponge rollers in her hair. and um. Then the stage manager comes out and goes, Cher, you've got knocks on her door. You've got five minutes. So she, she's, she's got her, her aide de camp there, her girlfriend, me, and her. The three of us walk out. We're standing on the, the lip of the stage at Great Woods. There's 30,000 people out there. She hasn't gone on stage in 10 years. This is her first time. And the last time she was on stage was at a casino in Vegas, I think. She was a nervous wreck and she was, it's hot, it's humid. She's sweating and she gets handed the mic. You're on. Sonny introduces her. The place goes shit house wild. And she's walking out on stage with the rollers in her hair. Oh. And I yelled at her. I was like, Cher, your rollers. And she goes, ah, and turns around, pulls the rollers out of her hair and flops up her bangs and walks out on stage. I saved her. I saved her. <laughs> Every time that you would come to Boston to talk to me about music, you always had an amazing story. And you and I share our love of the Beatles. And I really want you to tell me this, the Paul McCartney story because I was literally dying laughing at the ridiculousness of this story when you told it to me. Because to me... 
there's an echelon of artists, right, that, I, that I've never met. There are the, the unattainables. I've spoken to Jimmy Page on the phone but never met him. Uh, I've never met a Beatle. You know, there, there are certain people that I have not, John Bon Jovi, believe it or not, is like one of the only rock artists I've never been able to meet. And he was like my childhood favorite. Um, these are bucket list things. I, I was at a Super Bowl watching the Patriots win in Jacksonville, Florida, and Paul McCartney is the halftime show. But your story about Paul McCartney just cracks me up because it's so random and hilarious. So will you tell me that story? Yeah. Um, I came to um, work at Concord Records in 2013. And um, I, I, I was at an independent, um, I was at the independent working after I left Deaf American or after actually Deaf American was shut down as a fully operating label in the late nineties. I went to V2 records for 10 years, moved to New York city. And then that went down. And then in anyway, I went to Concord records in 2013 because I was going to work a Beatle. Yeah. Paul McCartney. Yeah. Paul McCartney. I mean, I, I, I was like, I, I, I want to, you know, I, I want to work because I'm nearing, I'm nearing the end of my career. And, um, you know, I was already, I was hitting 60 and I'd been doing this for 30 years. And I was like, well, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to work a fucking Beatle. So I accepted the job at Concord and, um, Paul McCartney was doing promotion in New York city. And my first week on the job, um, I was taking Paul McCartney to, well, I didn't take him. He had his own driver and a bodyguard and, his publicist and me and my, my boss, my, the head of promotion. So we were with him at Sirius satellite radio where he was on the Howard Stern show for a couple of hours. And then we had to cross town and go six blocks. And we had to meet him at the um, national public radio building where they were housed right near Bryant park. So um, we were standing we, my boss and I were standing in the loading bay of, of, of um, the NPR building where the garbage trucks backed in and dumped all the containers of garbage. And that's where they had Paul McCartney's car. They wanted him to pull into the garbage bay. So I'm standing out on the, on Everybody 43rd thinks street. it's so glamorous, but those backstage doors are always where the dumpsters are. Yeah. So, well, yeah, we were in the garbage bay. So I'm looking for, I know what McCartney's, McCartney was in an, like a Ford Explorer, something, you know, wasn't glam, wasn't an Escalade. It was just a Ford Explorer or something. And I could see them coming down, down 43rd street. They were traveling West on an, on an East to Westbound street, 43rd street. So I'm out in the street and I could see the car coming down the block. And all of a sudden surrounding the car are all these kids on small bikes like banana seat bikes, a swarm of them surrounding his car. And they were, they were looking for signatures that they could sell on eBay. And they were really aggressive. So I'm out on the street and I see his driver and I see this swarm, like, like 20, 20 to 30 bicycles surrounding his car. And the car pulls into the bay 
And then there were two maintenance guys that are pulling the chains and bringing the loading dock doors down. And these kids were on their side trying to get underneath the doors, the doors coming down. I swear to God, it was frightening. So we're secure. The kids didn't make it in. But you could hear him, Paul, give one up for the hood. Give one up for the hood. And he, he stopped signing stuff because of how much money his signature went for on. on a lot um, of artists did because they couldn't control, like Tool was like that, unless they, you would put the name and then the date to try and keep this stuff from getting sold on eBay. Right. So he, you know, he just stopped doing it more or less. And um, so we, he, he, we had him, NPR let us use their studio and bring other radio companies in to interview him. So we, he would sit and sit for Cumulus Radio, which would air to there. To there, he would have you know iHeart people. So we had we were at Sirius with Stern, and then NPR, Cumulus, couple other outlets. He sat in one studio. Well, he was hungry, and his guy came up to me and said, "Kevin, Paul would like a bagel." And then he gave me a list of the accoutrement that Paul wanted on his bagel, and it included Marmite, and. It was September and or early October, and it was really warm outside. And I was so flustered. I, 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 I was running. Instead, I couldn't get a cab. What is Marmite, just for clarification? It's compounded yeast that Brits and Aussies call it um, Vegemite. Aussies call it Vegemite. Brits call it Marmite. But it's compounded yeast that they use... Um, during rations after World War II, when he was a kid growing up in a ration country that had no butter, so they put it on in, put it on toast instead of butter because it was rationed and they couldn't get it, and it's disgusting. But yeah, it's but you know certain people. Um, it's an acquired um, taste. Well, I think I think um, I worked with with Jimmy Page too on the Outrider album, and I think he had Marmite on on his rider for backstage. I mean, it's, yeah, certain people just love it, especially British men of a certain generation because they grew up on it. Right. So I was like, where the fuck am I going to get Marmite? And I'm out on the street trying to get a cab. Couldn't get a cab. I'm running. I got him the best bagels in New York city and I'm trying to find Marmite. And then it hit me that a new supermarket with a British section opened up and I finally got a taxi, asked the taxi to wait, run in and get the Marmite. My boss is calling me going, where the fuck are you? He's dying. He's got a break. He wants his bagel. And I'm like, I'm on my way back. I'm, I'm coming. I got it. I got it. So I come back in. I'm sweating. And and I hand his, his aide, who'd been with him for 30 years, I hand him the bagel and the Marmite and all the stuff that he wanted. And, you know, it wasn't much. It was, you know, he wanted margarine instead of butter and the Marmite and I got Paul McCartney a bagel with Marmite. That's what I did. It's the most he, random thing. I left him. I left him alone. He was in the kitchen, and all these people from NPR are. He's sitting at a bar, really tiny kitchen in the in in, in like the twentieth floor of this office building in Midtown Manhattan, and it was so funny. I just backed off. You know, I didn't say anything to him. Handed this guy the bags. I'm sorry it took me so long. I'm sweating, and um, all these people are walking into the kitchen and they see paul mccartney sitting there and they're like oh just oh eating my a God. bagel it's the most random thing on like a yeah, Tuesday and they're going morning. into the fridge to get their to get their you know tupperware container of lunch out and there's paul mccartney sitting right next to the refrigerator eating a bagel 
And then he walked, he finished his bagel and had his cup of tea and he's walking back into the studio and he leans into me and goes, that was a great New York bagel. <laughs> like, like, it's just, it's one of those just random, ridiculous things. But as a fan, a lifelong fan of rock music, to be that 10-year-old watching Ed Sullivan to all those years later. And, you know, I never saw him live. I never, Paul McCartney toured a lot with Wings. I never saw the shows. And I had tickets one year. And when I looked at the ticket and I saw that it was sponsored by Visa, I sold it. I was mad at him. You don't need a visa. You don't need a corporate sponsor. Why are you doing this? But I mean, that's the age we live in. And he was just at the forefront of it. Yeah. So I got an opportunity the next day. The, the, when the album came out, he performed at the Frank Sinatra school for the performing arts in Queens. And it was a school, it's a school that was built by Tony Bennett and Tony Bennett put Frank Sinatra's name on it. And Paul McCartney and his band performed in the high school auditorium and all the high school students at the perform at this performing arts high school in Queens were sitting in the front and, and, and so there might have been at the most a thousand people in the whole house and the invited guests of McCartney and some contest winners were sitting up in the balcony, but all the kids, the high school kids were in the front and I lost my mind. I lost my mind. When that band did eight days a week, I, 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 I just about plots. I was had tears streamed down my face. I thought my head was going to explode. I felt like I was 10 years old watching Ed Sullivan again. When he toured in Boston and played at Fenway, I did everything I could to get my mom tickets because I was like, you know what? She needs to see a Beatle. She never got to see them. And this was as close as she was going to get. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like you, you have to, I remember being at that Super Bowl in Jacksonville going, I'm watching a Beatle right now. Did you get your mother tickets? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. She loved the it. Other, the other time that I saw him, I, I saw him, um, you know, because I worked for the label, um, we didn't get free tickets, you know, for McCartney. Um, none of the big acts like have usually have very many gratis tickets. Although uh, people tried, hey, I'd like two pair. I was like, well, that'll cost you. Here's the price line. What? Yeah. What, what do you mean? You yeah. can't just get them for free? Yeah. I, I really had a cousin that asked me for two pair of tickets. I couldn't believe it. Not one, two. Yeah. And a friend of mine works for Springsteen and we were, we were kibitzing one day and I was like, yeah. He was like, yeah, tickets. Yeah. Four is the new, four is the new two. <laughs> and they expect them for free. But anyway, yeah. McCartney had a price list. So anybody that wanted tickets, we were allowed to buy them for them. And there was a whole process. He had a whole company devoted to ticket buys. So um, I saw him um, uh, on the first tour, not the first tour, but the second leg of, of that tour for the album that came out in 2013 on Concord. I saw him in Albany. And it was one of the, the best shows I've ever seen in my life. He had a 50-song set list. I think 48 songs. How do you write a 40? I've seen, I've seen bands with 90-minute, 75-minute shows agonizing over their set list. 
And Paul McCartney played for three to four hours. He's in his 70s and he performs 48 songs with one of the best bands I've ever heard on the planet. It blew my mind. Yeah. And the quality of that production in the in a in a you know a 13,000 seat, 15,000 seat arena, the light show was genius. The projections of of the the Beatles and footage of him with with George Harrison and Ringo and John Lennon, it it was beautiful. Well, if and, you're going to be Paul McCartney, you're not going to you're not going to one of the happiest shows I've ever been to in my life. Everybody was happy. Everybody felt privileged and it was it was joy. It was just pure joy seeing him there. And I had another opportunity to see him at Irving Plaza in New York on Valentine's Day in 2014 or 2015, I think. And Irving Plaza is a Polish dance hall in, in the village in New York, and it's 1,100 seats. There's a U-shaped balcony and then a, a GA floor. And it was, it was astonishing to see that band in that small room. It's crazy. Just like, the, you know, so in that, in that period of time, after I got him the bagel with Marmite, <laughs> I had three great opportunities to see him live, which I'd never done before in my life. So it was, uh, it was a, it was peak. It was a peak experience. Can I ask you before I let you go, because you worked in the record business and you've alluded to it a few times about the broadband change going from physical record sales to the illegal downloading to the streaming world. You worked through it all and the industry is still kind of reeling, trying to figure out and the artists are trying to figure out how, how to control the damage of the streaming, how to get paid because the business model changes back in the day. And, and I used to be on the air siding with Lars when the Napster thing hit and people gave me shit. And I was like, look, these bands and these tours got to get paid for somehow. So if you don't want to pay for your records, you're going to pay more money for concert shirts and you're going to pay more money for concert tickets because the money's got to come. Cause I was a roadie. So I know how much this stuff costs. So having gone through that digital revolution of the music business, do you think that streaming and all of the new technology is ever going to get to the point where the artists are properly compensated for their streams because they're not being properly compensated right now? I, I, I'm not going to hazard a guess. I doubt it. You know, they're never going to, there's not going to be as much money in the game as there was in the eighties and the early nineties. And, and, you know, digital access is so easy. I can remember back in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands. And, you know, my, my, my nieces and nephews were all in college and, and they were all downloading stuff. And, and I was like, you're stealing, you're stealing intellectual property. And they were like, yeah, but we can't, we know it's immoral and we know it's not right, but we can, therefore we will. Yeah. We're not going to get in trouble. We're not going to get arrested. Yeah. And we love well, the music. Art, artists are, 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 you know, they're especially developing artists. Like the couple of artists that I've talked to this year, you know, I said, you've got to crack social media because you're not going to get played on the radio and you don't have the kind of music that's radio friendly. And, and, and I've, I've even told established artists to, to walk away from radio because it's really expensive and they don't have the money. And it's like, you know, to, to launch a record at country radio 
um, or, or pop, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and if, you don't, if you don't happen these days through social media um, or YouTube, you, 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 your chances are success even if you're a touring artist and look at what this last year has done, you know, stop touring altogether. So it's, um, I don't know. I don't know, Carrie, you know, I mean, it's always been, um, our, you know, late, late record companies and you, you don't need a record company. It helps to have one because there's a lot of influence with record companies of, of the media that they can reach that you can't on your own. So you've got to have lightning in a bottle or you need a machine. You need a village of people helping you out and promoting you. And it used to be so, you know, it was so much easier in the 80s and the early 90s. And then once the, the digital revolution hit, I, 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 uh, I, I have a vivid memory of, of an intern from NYU coming into my office in New York and showing me Napster. And, and you know, it was taking 20 minutes to download a three-minute song or more because we had T1 lines, which were the big thing, but we didn't have broadband yet back in, in 98, 99. And, and he was like, yeah, and I want to work for a record company. And I was like, well, buddy, I was like, you keep downloading shit for free. How do you think record companies make their money? And I said, you know, you want a job in an industry that you're taking down by virtue of nabbing shit off the internet for free that you used to have to pay for. So you're uh, good luck getting a job in the record industry, uh, you know, and, and at the time in the, in the late eighties and the early or, or, late nineties and early two thousands, people were losing their jobs by the hundreds in the record industry, anyone in sales and distribution where there used to be um, regional offices, regional distribution centers, um, we had one in Boston, New York, Philadelphia. We, uh, I'm just talking all of them. All of the, all of the major labels had warehouses in Boston, or, and or if they didn't have a, a, a warehouse and a marketing sales promotion office, they had a, a marketing and sales and promotion office. And then they started uh, centralizing distribution, and then physical product went away altogether. So by the late '90s when you still had a warehouse that w- that was fully stocked with 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 cassettes and CDs c- believe it or not cassettes were still around um and vinyl you know vinyl seen a, a a heyday again because people like the quality of vinyl so there are you know a couple of friends of mine have kids in high school and they're saying my kid is really into vinyl really into the sound quality they just love it so there's getting a cool record player. It's 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 everything that that we loved about it, that the record player was part of the furniture, that you showed it off, that it was something your friends did. You you traded albums and, and it was it was a whole thing. I never traded albums. Yeah. <laughs> uh-uh. No way. They'll come back scratched and dirty. Forget about it. Yeah, exactly. Or never come back at all. That's how you knew if the friend was good or not. If you got your record back in the same condition that you loaned it in. I wasn't going to put our, I wasn't going to put that test to our friendship. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact that the fact that it's back now is really cool. I love that records are that, that these albums are back now. Yeah. I, I, I I think it was in the late nineties. 
I was, it might've been, it might've been for the, for the AAF Lowell show. I was walking down Newberry street with, with, with a few of the black crows, I think with, with Chris and Steve Gorman, the drummer. And, uh, we saw a kid with a 12 by 12 bag under his arm and we got real excited. Oh my God, there's a kid buying vinyl. And, um, I ran up to the kid and I was like, what's in your bag? And it was a calendar. Yeah, I was going to say it was probably a calendar because like, oh, it's the same oh, size. I, I, I was hoping it was, I was hoping it wasn't a vinyl album. He was like, what? Because back, yeah. So it's great that it's back, that vinyl's back. Can you believe that the Robinson brothers kissed and made up and were supposed to go back on the road this year? I mean, you spent all that time with them. Like, it's amazing it's that. 20, spent 20 years with them. Don't believe what they're, don't believe it. <laughs> that it, that you don't think the tour is going to happen? They, they need them. They need to make money. They need to make, yeah, it'll happen. They need to make money. So I, I'd be very surprised if the brothers were really, truly uh, getting along. But maybe they are. Good luck to them. It shows you that it's just, you know, the, the, the idea of being in a band with your brothers. There's been a lot of great music made by brothers. And then there's also been a, a lot of damage to families with brothers that are in bands together. Yeah. I interviewed, I interviewed Dwayne Allman, uh, uh, not Dwayne. I interviewed Greg Allman, um, for a box set of a, re a career retrospective that came out on Concord. And it was, it was very difficult to talk to him and he was very shy and, um, it, it, it um, you know, he, he couldn't talk about his brother. So it was, that's kind of what they wanted me to get. You know, here's a list of things that we want you to talk to him about for the interview section of the deluxe box set. And it was something that, you know, it's 40 years later, he still couldn't talk about it or wouldn't. Yeah. It's painful. Yep. Well, Alex Van Halen's going through that right now with the loss of his brother. It's like, you know, that's a partnership with brothers that did really well, even though there are legendary stories of them getting drunk and beating each other up. Nancy Wilson talked about one of those in a recent interview, like, but, but then when your musical partner is also your family member. Well, the, the kinks were the day, the, the Davies brothers, they were, they were known as brawlers too. Yeah. And then Oasis, Oasis, yeah. they were brawlers. Yep. Even the Jonas brothers had drama and are back together now and figured it all out. And those guys were like sweet as apple pie, you know? It's just, I guess it's hard when you're, I wouldn't know because I don't have any musical talent. Thankfully, my yeah. sister and I have never been in a band. Me either. I was in a band at one point in time, though. I played drums in a, in a band. We had no gigs, but we did play out in the woods in New Hampshire. And I played <laughs> drums and I wore a Red Sox batting helmet in case our friends wanted to throw some shit at us. I was protected. <laughs> and our name was Tits and Corn. And this was before K-O-R-N. The name of we, your band was Tits and Corn. Yeah. We had two guys and two girls. I was the drummer, female front person, uh, gu guitar and bass. And we played in the woods in New Hampshire and got eaten alive by mosquitoes for our friends as we got fucked up in the woods in New Hampshire, just north of Keene. Oh, we had power, though. No running water, but we had power. So we brought the amps and the drums. And you need the power to rock. Yeah. I want to get you a shirt that says tits and corn made. 
Oh man, it, what, that that certainly endeared me to a few bands when they were like, "Have you ever been in a band?" I was like, "Yeah." What was your name? And I remember telling telling Jack White, and he and he and Meg just fell on the floor laughing at me. <laughs> what the fuck? Are you crazy? As speaking of being on the forefront of the resurgence of vinyl, I mean, that's the guy driving the bus, Jack White. Yeah, he's he, he's he's a he's a very interesting vivid person he's got a lot going on his brain is so fertile and you could see it you could see him thinking and his ability to articulate and his ideas and he's uh that was a that was a peak in my career working working seven nation army and working with them and their shows were on fire and you know i was with them when they were in a van and then and then you know they were doing they, Seven Nation Army was became they be, it became a they became an arena band. Can you believe and, that's a sports anthem now in sporting sure. arenas at games all over, all over the world? And I knew it. I can the, I, I, we there were three of us that worked that record. Where there were the record industry got so hammered in the early two thousands that when. When the, the when the White Stripes delivered delivered that album, the head of V Two Records brought us brought us into his office and said the marketing the marketing director and I have picked a single, and it wasn't Seven Nation Army. And when we heard Seven Nation Army, we knew it in three notes, and we're going, "Are you fucking kidding us? This has got to be the first single." And three of us worked that record nationally. It was it was hard. Like just, you know, like all great things like Guns N' Roses, working Seven Nation Army was not easy. And I'll tell you what the turning point was for that record when other bands started to cover it. And there was a Lollapalooza tour. And what was Chris Cornell's band's name in the early 2000s? Audio Slave? Audio Slave covered it. And I was sitting with a developing act that was playing the second stage, a great band from Philly by the name of Burning Brides that was a trio on V2. And I was sitting backstage with them in, at the second stage. And I hear, dun, 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 dun. You didn't and just I, hear that bass line. You heard Tim Comerford playing that bass line from Audio Slave. I mean, it's basically okay. Rage Against the Machine with Chris Cornell. <laughs> that rhythm section from Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave is redonkulous. I mean, I had program directors at the time say to me, I don't play records that don't have a bass. And the only thing good about that drummer is her rack, which set my hair on fire and I was get my brass knuckles out. I will kill you, motherfucker. I will cut you in the face. Walter, yeah. get the pipe. So it was <laughs> Walter, get the pipe. It was, it was, you know, like a lot of great records. It took, it was, it was hard. It was hard getting them. I mean, people came up with every excuse in the book not to play a hit song if they don't like it. Yeah. Crazy. Well, they were one of those bands. I mean, I remember having having the conversations at AAF because they were one of those bands that didn't fit into anything. And, and music was, okay, well, it, does it go on this shelf or does it go on this shelf? Like, what label? And they're one of those artists that 
it, they well, they were on the, they were on the back end of what I called the dirge movement. You know, the, 91 to like 2001 was the dirge movement, where if you were dark and 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 minor keyed chords with a fuzz tone on the guitar, that was rock. And and if you played a guitar that was like jack sound and were blues based, you didn't get played on the radio. So it was a really bad time for a lot of music. There was a, a band that I worked on V2 out of the UK that's massive over there, Stereophonics. And if there's one that hurts me that I look back on in my career of a band that should have broke in this country that didn't, it was Stereophonics. And I tried like hell to get them played, but they were in an era where the research tells us that Britpop doesn't work. So it was, that's when Hoobastank became a rock band. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? A rock, this is a rock trio in the tradition of Zeppelin and The Who and Hendrix. And you're saying no, because they're pop? They're not pop, they're a rock band. Anyway, and they wrote, they wrote lyrical melodies. So it was that, that one, that was a, that was a, that was a real hard, not only was the business going down, but I thought, I thought radio was in a, in a, in a, in a tough spot by being so limited, especially rock radio and being limited in what it was exposing the audience to. Well, that was also in the era of rock that, you know, when I talked to Jonathan McHugh, like Rob Zombie in that film, Long Live Rock, talked about the sausage fest that rock became that it became in the late 90s, early 2000s, because I was on the air at AAF in that new metal era, and I love all that music. Right. I love the right. Slipknots, the Corns, the Seven Dust, the Deftones. Right. Like, I love all of it. But it was a really hard era for melodic rock. Yes. And it, yeah. and it really fragmented a lot of what was going on because... If you played Slipknot on the radio like we did, it was hard to play something that was more alt-leaning. And yeah, AAF, it was hard to play the White Stripes. Yes, and, and yeah. we did it. I, and I remember having those arguments with you about yeah. how it would fit in and yeah. how you could buffer it and how you could play it after liners in the top of the hour where you don't go from the Deftones into the White Stripes. Yeah. How you can massage your playlist and how you scheduled your music into into being able to play something that would be left field for you and your audience. But then the argument would be, well, we've got this narrow niche. And ultimately it led to the downfall of a lot of radio stations. Yeah. Like like K-Rock in New York City. They went, they became very narrowly focused like that. And I mean that's not why the audience left, but it wasn't maybe it could they couldn't sell it anymore. That's a whole nother story. Well right? that's the that's the thing is that, you know, what is rock? What fits in that? I mean, look at, you know, who got nominated in the in the rock categories of well, being nominated for metal band. Yeah. I mean, it's like it, it's like the Grammys, what? the Grammys have never been kind, never been kind to no. rock. The Beatles never got nominated in the 60s. They never got nominated for a Grammy. They were given Grammy Awards to Henry Mancini, not the Beatles. You know, it was it, it, it's. But now. Now people have this ability to discover music, and this is one of the good things about the technology that on one hand almost buried the record industry, but on the other hand... YouTube. Yeah, like the, the, the algorithms that 
you know, oh, you discover this artist and then it, and then the computer goes, oh, well, if you like these, you might like this. And all of a sudden you can bump into something that you love. Or, you know, we used to do this thing on the air where you would go through each other's iPhones to see what was on like your Apple playlist or whatever. And you would always find these random things and be like, what, how did that end up in your phone? But, you know, people's taste well, Spotify, for music or- when Spotify first launched in this country, there was a sidebar where you could register and show your other people on Spotify what what you were what you were listening to. So it you know crowdsourcing, you're like what's what's happening here? You know, like the like YouTube showing up with if you like this video, you're going to like these videos and have the icons, and that's that's where most music discovery, maybe other than TikTok. But yeah. I, still, I still think it's probably the primary source of music discovery. Well, that's one of the things that I do with this podcast. So for every episode, I make a corresponding playlist of all of the artists that we talked about in that episode with whatever band I'm interviewing. or So the corresponding playlist for your episode is going to be all of this amazing music, which is going to be all over the place because we've talked about everybody. So when I'm making this playlist... Oh, we playlist- didn't talk about everybody. Because I, I made, a, like, a little list before. You did? Like, oh, yeah. We didn't talk about, you know, some of the bigger records and the dis- the disparate. Like, that. I, I worked a number one single from a band from the UK called Simply Red, and it was called Holding Back the Years. Yeah, I remember to- that song. I, they, I took them on their first promo tour of the United States, as well as Kylie Minogue who had a number one record in 1989 in this country when she was massive in Australia and the UK in a soap opera called Neighbors. Yep. And she was dating Michael Hutchins. Oh. <gasps> yeah. And she came to this country. I picked her up, took her all over the place to all the pop stations, Providence, Boston, had a retail dinner for her. She was lovely. And she was very young. She was probably 20, 21 at the time. She was fabulous. And she had a number one single in, in this country with locomotion. And then 20 years later, she became like a pop diva doing, doing disco songs. And who else did I? Uh, I oh, I worked with Kyle, um, Olivia Newton-John. <gasps> she, worked a ch- she made a children's record that Geffen released. And I took her all, I took her to Jammin' and Kiss and uh, Mix and she was fabulous. That is a that is a memory I have that is as vivid to me now as it is like it was yesterday. My mom taking me to the movies to see Grease. And I remember that last five minutes with her in that leather jacket smoking the cigarette. And I remember saying to my mom, that's what I want to be like. And if that wasn't a warning shot across the bow for my mom on the crazy daughter she was raising, because that to me, even at that young age, that's what was cool. She was, she was awesome. She was very down to earth and very human. And she, I said, well, let's, we're going to break for lunch. We've got an hour and I know of a Thai place where we can get in and out of and find a place to park and get to our next station and be there on time. Cause she had also had a plane to catch that afternoon to go back to Los Angeles. And um, thank God I knew all the shortcuts to Logan airport because her dry, the driver we had would not have gotten us there. And I, 
follow that FedEx truck. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she was, we went to a Thai restaurant right near the Paradise, right up the street from the Paradise. And she ordered our whole menu and she could eat. I loved it. She just like dug in. She ordered everything for us, her assistant, me and her. And I just loved that She just chowed down. People were walking by, go, oh, it's a love you know, child. Yeah, I would freak out. Are you kidding me? Like, such a vivid childhood memory. That movie was defining for me. And there we were in a Thai restaurant on Com Ave, a block up up the street from the Paradise. Who else? Donna Summer. Donna Summer. She's a Boston girl. Donna Summer, late, 88. And I don't think she did a promo tour here, and the record never came out. And I was, I, I, yeah, that was, she was great. I liked all the big divas, Cher and, uh, and, um, and Olivia and Kylie, they were, and Donna Summer, they were awesome women, awesome women. Who else is going on your playlist? You got any other names on there on that list? Um, let me see. Uh, big ones. No, not real big ones. But that, Don Henley's pretty big. Yeah, I worked um, The End of the Innocence in 89. Cheryl Crow was in his backup singer, and he did an arena tour and a shed tour. He was, it was huge. You know, those, that was New York Minute and Last Worthless Evening and um, Heart of the Matter. Those were big records. He was, he was real tough and real smart, real smart guy. I had a, I, he, he did meet and greets too. And we were doing a meet and greet in Providence. And there was a photographer who was trying to impress him and run the show. And he said to her in front of everybody, Karen's running this show. Take direction from Karen. Yeah. And in your head, you're like, yeah. Bitches. Well, she was trying to impress him, yeah. you know, by being by being um, saucy. You just lean over and, and be w- like, "Don't make me get Walter in the pipe." <laughs> uh, yeah, that's you know Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah, you know who else I worked with? Who had the biggest selling comedy record of 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 all time? Oh my god! Other than Steve Martin, <gasps> Andrew Dice Clay. He sold out the Worcester Centrum and the Boston Garden and the Providence Civic Center. I remember. When, when that record came out on Deaf American in the early 90s. That was crazy. He did a book signing. He, he did an in-store at Tower Records in Boston. And Howard Stern's book had just come out talking about him. And he was furious that people weren't buying his comedy album, but, bringing, but buying Stern's book for him to sign. <laughs> He was like, don't let them, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, oh, you know, another one that was, that was auspicious, was interesting. Rick, Rick Rubin signed such left field acts sometimes. And one of them was the Jim Rose Circus Sideshow. And I was taking Jim Rose around the radio to do interviews on the air, which were extraordinarily entertaining. And who would have thought that a guy that has a circus sideshow could give a good radio interview? They were phenomenal interviews. And when we were driving, he was from Seattle. And when we were driving from Boston to Providence, 
it came on the radio that Kurt Cobain had just killed himself and they were friends. And that was tough. That was tough. Being with a guy who was in grieving over a friend of his. That was real tough. Those, those days, those instances being on the air, I mean, the last experience we had before AAF was gone was, was breaking the news that Neil Peart from Rush had died. Yeah. But losing, losing a pillar in the rock community, I mean, losing a Chester Bennington, losing a Chris Cornell, losing a Kurt Cobain, Elaine Staley, like Dimebag Daryl, and that tragedy that happened, those days are so vivid in my mind of being in the studio because you knew that the people listening to you were just as passionate about the music and the artists as you are. And knowing that you were about to say something on the air that was going to be upsetting to everyone listening. Those were really hard things to do as a person on the radio to deliver news like that. Yeah. And you try so hard not to screw it up. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, that was a rough day. And that, that, (laughs) yeah. Jim, Jim Rose Circus is part of one of the craziest shows I had ever been to in my life. And that was when they opened for nine inch nails, the last gig at the Boston garden with Marilyn Manson. I was there and it was, was it Manson or nine inch nails or both? Was Man- it the, uh, Manson it was opened up and Jim Rose went in between set change and it was when the downward spiral was at its peak and it was the last concert of the Boston Garden and it, they had put seats in rows that were zip tied on the floor of the garden and at one point Trent Reznor said something like um you know, I never should have fucking had this show in a sporting arena because I want you guys to be able to dance. And I was in like the second row of one of the loges on the side. So I was up off the floor by a few feet. And I just remember this collective snapping noise. And I looked at my friend Kristen and all of a sudden, because remember those, those kabuki screens that Nine Inch Nails used to use that you could kind of see through it, but then they could project like the big snake head and stuff on it. And mm-hmm. I just remember there was projection on the screen and you just saw this guy's arm go up and broke into the image on the screen. And it was a guy's arm with one of the chairs and the snapping was the breaking of the zip ties. And yeah. next thing you know, rows of chairs at the old garden were getting handed back And this pile behind the front of house in the back of the floor of the arena just started, people were just throwing the chairs. And I remember security and uniformed police coming down the stairs from the loges to get onto the floor. And I was like, this is only a few years after like the Guns N' Roses, Metallica riots and the Montreal and that co-headlining tour and all that. And I was like, oh shit, it's about to get bad. Is that the one that, that came to Foxborough in like 92, 91, 92? Yeah, yeah, it was five days after the riot in Montreal. And I was at that show too. And I was like, oh my God, like the cops are coming in. They're going to put a stop to the show and we're going to be in a riot. How are we going to get out of here? The daughter of a firefighter here looking for the exits, right? And I was amazed that the uniformed cops and the staff of the garden started helping to stack the chairs and get them out of the way. And the crowd started going crazy because they realized the cops weren't there to stop it. The cops were there to clear the way. And the Nine Inch Nails pit 
and the dancing. It's the last concert of the old Boston Garden, so they were probably just like, fuck it, these guys are going to help us tear the building down. It is one of the most amazing shows I had ever been to, and Jim Rose Circus was right there in the middle of it. Yeah, the amazing Mr. Lifto. Oh, my God. Yeah, really? Yeah. Those were crazy, crazy times. And, And again, like I said to you before, you look back at those moments now and you're like, wow, that was so cool. But in the moment, every rock fan has a moment at a show where for a split second at least they thought they were going to die. And now... I wasn't, I wasn't even in that Jethro Tull show yet. Yeah, you were just in the lobby. Yeah, I was outside. And it's amazing that we all laugh about it now. It's part of being a rock fan is that you have to have that near-death experience to be inducted into the, you know, it, you're now inoculated, you know? It's like, okay, now you're part of the club. And having a gun held to my head at a dead show in Utica, New York in 1973. It's insane. That was crazy. It's insane. Now it would be up on YouTube and TikTok and, you know. Yeah, life before the cell phone was... Uh... I, the last time I went to see, um, the last time I went to see Jack, Jack White, it was um, a couple of years ago. And um, it was at uh, uh, the Warsaw, this wonderful Polish dance hall in, um, in, in Brooklyn. And um, they had a bowling alley on the top floor. It was great. Um, but they had, um, you put your cell phone in a secure bag and zip tied it. And then you had it on you, but you couldn't get in it. It had to be unlocked as you left the house. So it was so great that you were at a show where everyone didn't have a phone up or, or the blue light of the phone as they were texting someone instead of watching the show. I, it was a big relief. Tool did I, that too. And, and, you know, a lot of people gave him shit. And at the very end of the show, the last song, they gave everybody permission. They said, okay, now you can take your phones out. If you want to take pictures and video, you can do it now. Okay. But it was amazing to be at a show where no one had their phones up and everyone yeah. was just present in that moment. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, it made a big difference. It was the first show I'd been at in, in, since the smartphone where, um, where, you know, the whole house wasn't filled with arms up in the air, obstructing people's views that are small like me. And uh, it's, it's uh, I think it's nice. I saw this ben, meme recently ben. that was hilarious. And it said, well, since we haven't been able to go to concerts in a year, I hope all those assholes that videotaped all the concerts they used to go to have been savoring those videos in the last year. <laughs> well, you know, the, the propensity of people to behave badly is is really really depressing i i was at a show with a with a band a developing band in san francisco and in front no actually it was portland oregon and in front of the stage were girls with their back to the band and they were right in it was a small small theater and they were right in front of the band and the bands right up here they had their backs to the band they had their cell phones like this, taking pictures, selfies with the band behind them. And the band could see this isn't about us. It's about them being here. Look at us, how cool we are. Yeah. And I went, I, I had some people with me and I went back to talk to the band and pay my respects with the people that I was with. And they were all so depressed. They, they, they thought Portland, Oregon, hip city. 
we're, it's going to be a great show. And it, and the, the audience behaved so badly, or a lot of the people in the audience behaved so badly that, hey, I remember the Robinson Brothers on a, on a solo acoustic tour years ago, late 90s or early 2000s. And the brothers played uh, Bowery Ballroom in New York. And Chris was yelling, yelling at people to shut the fuck up. We can't even hear each other up here. You're talking so loud. And I thought, well, maybe if you were a little bit more entertaining, they wouldn't be talking so much. Because <laughs> sometimes it's the artists, too. You know, that's it's one of the what- last shows that I went to before the lockdown was the was the Brothers of a Feather when when just the two of them went out and played acoustic. I saw him at the Brighton Music Hall the Wednesday night before AAF's last two days of broadcast. When was that? Last year. January? Yeah. Uh, last did, middle of last did, February. AAF's when, last day was February 21st. So it was February 19th of 2020. Wow. What timing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah me, wow. Mike Shu, everybody from the radio station, we went over to the Brighton Music Hall to go and see them because we had been in the office all day scheduling the last two days of AAF and what we were going to do on the last two days of broadcast. And for those few hours... For all, and it wasn't just us. It was a lot of AAF people that were working at other stations now because it was really hard to get tickets because it's such a small place. And for those few hours to just be able to be present in that moment with this music that I grew up loving, arm in arm with Mike Shue and Adam and all these other people from AAF before the last two days is just a really, coming to an end. Yeah, it was just a really special thing. And then the next week I was out in Vegas after AAF went off the air and I saw Bush at the House of Blues. And that's the last concert I've seen since then. It was at the yeah. end of February last year. So yeah. hopefully we get them back at the end of this year and, you know, we'll see what well, happens. I, 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 they want to, you know, if, if, I mean, restaurants are opening up. Gyms are opening up, you know, unless these variants um, have their way with us. Maybe we'll maybe we'll see some theater and live music again. That would be nice. Well, thank you, darling. It was so nice to have you on. Thank you so much. You're a treasure trove of amazing stories. We talked for three hours. I certainly hope you're going to you're going to edit. No. No, no. Who's going to, who's going to listen to this for three hours? You'd be surprised. Oh shit. Wow. You're that interesting, Karen Durkot. You're one of my spirit animals of rock and roll. (laughs) Thank you, Don. There she is. The one and only Karen Durkot. That's not even all her stories. We couldn't fit all her stories in another full podcast episode, which I am more than willing to have her on whenever she wants. And I will be wearing a tits and corn tour t-shirt when it happens. And you're welcome for having your new favorite phrase, Walter, get the pipe. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast so you don't miss anything. Full length episodes every Wednesday, plus the situation report with all of your rock news and music headlines in less than five minutes every weekday. And give us a five-star review and leave us a comment so we know what you thought of the episode. Huge thanks once again to Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org. They're hiring right now. And, of course, to mistresscarry.com. Join me every Tuesday night live on my Facebook page at 8.30 for Cocktails in the War Room. 
And I want to send a special hello out to everyone that has a Mistress Carrie backstage pass on Patreon. And in the show notes of this episode, click the link for the corresponding playlist. It rocks. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change.